0: And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are in this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, live, on the other side of midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn, and dawn, and dawn. No, I'm not stuttering. Um, this is the night that we change, uh, you know, we rotate our clocks backward an hour. Spring forward, fall back, you know, the old cliche, it's daylight savings time ending. Yay. You know, there's some discussion. In fact, I think there's even legislation where by next year, they're going to go to permanent daylight savings time. I don't like it. I like time that kind of keeps track of the sun, you know, where noon when the sun is on the meridian. I mean, come on. When daylight savings time, everything is 15 degrees off. We're off enough as it is geometrically in the hyperdimensional thought space of civilization all around this rotating globe. Okay, enough B and M and and all that. Um, We have a lot to get to tonight. We have a really intriguing show, as Ed Sullivan used to say, a really big shoe, Um, and we'll get right to it. So for all of you who are new to the other side of midnight, here's the drill. We have a section on the website called Radio with Pictures, and we do that. We put up pictures, and tonight is a heavily imaging-laden show. We're going to be talking about images of Mars and environs in the not-too-distant realm of space and time. So you want to be able to go to the website and look at the pictures on this little gadget you hold in your hand called a phone, a smartphone. Andrew and I were talking this afternoon about big dumb phones. Oh, we, we both had them, you know, uh, the ones where if you dropped them on your toe, you had to go to the hospital. Anyway, um, for those of you who are new to the show, what you want to do is go to the other side TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com, click on tonight's banner, which says very boldly, and you're, you're going to see that we're going to take you there, will the real Mars please stand up? 50 years of deliberate. NASA Color Confusion Over the Red Planet. Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. And then under the same banner at the top of the guest page, there's an item that says to listen to the show. Under that, it says guest page. And then fast links to items. Click on my name. That takes you to the section of Radio with Pictures where the images and other items for tonight are presented. Item number one, um, a week from tomorrow night, mountain time, they are going to try again to launch the Artemis 1 huge SLS rocket-Orion spacecraft combination on a 25-day, that's how long it's going to be this time, depends on the launch window, and that's changed, so the timing has changed, a 25-day mission-returning mission returning a human-rated spacecraft to the environs of the moon. And as I've said uh, for a couple, three weeks now, given that it's going to launch at 12.07 a.m. Monday morning, which is 10.07 p.m. Sunday night here, and our show goes on the air at 10, seven tetrahedral minutes into the show, into the other side of midnight, we may be able to go live to Cape Canaveral and bring you on the other side of midnight, the live beginning of humans, of Americans, of men and women returning Americans to the moon. At least that's the plan at the moment. And we'll know before um, the launch, like probably a couple of hours, whether the count is proceeding as nominal or normal, and whether we're actually going to have a launch uh, in the wee hours, uh, wee hours, yeah, like 12.07 a.m. Uh, Eastern time or 10.07 uh, p.m. my time on Sunday night. Depending upon what happens, we should be in what's called the terminal count. Whoever picked that term? <clears throat> terminal count, Okay. And we will know at the top of the show whether things are proceeding or whether something could go wrong in that last seven minutes and they have to hold. And then if they have to hold, there probably is maybe a 90-minute window for when they will have to scrub and then recycle the count for the following morning, which would change the times because it's all dependent on where the moon is when you launched if you're going to go to the moon, right? Right, of course. So, Um, All of that to be decided in the next uh, week, and we will know live Sunday night, a week from now, literally, whether we are about to go back to the moon or it's going to be delayed once again. Not quite sure yet. I'm working on something kind of special for Saturday, the preceding night leading up to the Artemis launch, but it isn't finalized yet. But we got a week and a week in this business is like a year or so uh kinda like politics, you know. The cliche was a year in politics is really a week. So, um tomorrow night we're gonna do part two uh with extensions of our discussion last Sunday with Steve Bassett and Barbara Honiger and Georgia Lambert and maybe a surprise guest or two relating to this incredibly interesting uh congressional report on UFOs slash UAPs and things that go bump in the all-domain universe of the Pentagon. And there is new news. So I will not uh, uh, kind of reveal any surprises now, but you might want to tune in tomorrow night when we will in fact be dealing with surprises. And the biggest question of all, which if you check the banner you'll see, Why the hell should we care about any of this stuff? Why are we doing these shows on space and what's out there and what's waiting and how we find out and how do we penetrate the fog of war, i.e. the fog of NASA, surrounding what's really beyond the Earth in the solar system? Because again and again and again, my uh, foundational statement made you know, decades ago that NASA really does stand for never a straight answer, certainly when it comes to what's in the solar system is coming true once again as tonight's show dealing as it does with the uh, extraordinary, <clears throat> I'll say it, outright lies they've been telling about Mars for 50 years. I mean, they've been lying about an entire blankety blank planet and the real mystery which we're going to get into at some length tonight, how in an international community of all kinds of scientists and people not dependent on NASA for a paycheck or a good word or a, uh, uh, up, you know, smile on Twitter, how has NASA gotten away with lying about an entire planet and how have they inveigle all the other space programs to kind of go along with them in the lie. I mean, These are not trivial questions. When I say lying, you know, it's like I can prove tonight. We will prove tonight conclusively NASA has been lying about Mars. But the big question, which we will probably not answer unless someone in the third hour calls in and says, well, this is the reason. Reading from a memo somewhere inside. Um, And that will not happen probably until uh, the president signs the latest NDAA, we're whistleblowing. I know Steve doesn't like that term, but telling the truth without fear of legal repercussions from anyone in or outside NASA, from anyone in or outside government, from, from the FBI, from the CIA, from the National Security Council, from any of the deep state agencies will be forbidden by law. And as soon as the president signs that document, which we're expecting now in the next couple, three weeks, this is a second government action, apart from what we're going to discuss tomorrow night, having already been signed as well as of a year ago, um, we can expect some really remarkable tales from the inside, tales from the dark side. And we may actually have someone call in and say, well, They've been lying about Mars because, and then they will give us the reason. I have some things on the record about that that I'm going to uh, relay in a, a few minutes to the audience here and around the world. I mean, we are in something like 195 countries. Yes, nope, the number, 195. Uh, that's how many countries are in the UN now. Isn't that interesting? Anyway, um, so item number one, a week from tomorrow night, there may be a live launch from the Cape and the beginning of the U.S. government effort to return humans, Americans, to the moon. And we won't know for a week and 24 hours. Actually, 23 hours and 53 minutes and change as of right now. Okay, moving on. Item number two. Every year at this time, I just kind of uh, talked about it at the top of the show. Every year, we have to remember, okay, it's spring forward, fall back. We lose an hour. Actually, we gain an hour because you can sleep in another hour tomorrow morning. There is a live launch at 5.50 a.m. Eastern time, which is 3.50 a.m. my time following the show. They are launching a Cygnus resupply rocket from wallops island in the pre-dawn darkness of the east coast but the really cool thing is it's going to leave the ground rise into the sky disappear in the southeastern direction and then because of the rotation of the earth and the timing it will break into sunlight while the ground cameras are still in total darkness so it could be quite spectacular if you have nasa television or you want to go to um uh you know youtube and find the nasa channel on youtube it may be worth your while to stay up and look at this thing you know launches never get old or you may want to just tape it and then you can watch it when you get up after your extra hour in the morning so item number two there's a nice story about the history of daylight savings time and then some of this legislation that could be uh, permanently instilling in the entire country daylight savings time forever and ever, amen, next year, Uh I frankly would like it not to be daylight savings time at all. You know, I mean, that was instituted to, well, there's a whole bunch of reasons that are covered in the article, so you might want to go and read that. And I really love that painting. It's a gorgeous painting. And I'm so glad Keith was able to get it posted, because it really... I mean, carrying over the theme of time takes us to item number three. This is really, really, really cool. There are times when NASA really comes through with extraordinary data that because it's so far out, they literally feel they don't have to censor or, you know, manhandle or keep us from knowing. This is a time release video composed of individual images, color images, real color, taken by the Hubble Space Telescope over the last five years. If you look at the very top, you see it says uh, 34 days. That's the first image, 75, 132, 302, et, cetera, et cetera. It's a series of images of a supernova in the um, uh, Centaurus a galaxy. This is a compilation of two galaxies that millions of years ago collided. It has an extraordinary history. Go just Google Centaurus A. It was one of the first radio galaxies ever discovered back in the 1950s when radio astronomy was being born in the minds and the technology of an individual citizen scientist named Grote Reber. He wasn't even an astronomer. He was a bell Telephone engineer, and he put together the first one of the first private radio telescopes, and he discovered Centaurus A as one of the brightest radio sources of radio waves in the sky. Up until that point, um, we only thought of stars as you know light-giving objects, planets as light-reflecting objects in our own system, but it was Reber who found that there were areas in the sky that were emitting relatively speaking intense amounts of radio energy and centaurus a which is this beautiful huge galaxy 12 million light years away which is kind of like right next door in terms of cosmological distances um in the direction of the southern hemisphere in the constellation of centaurus centaurus you know like alpha centauri that's also much 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 closer four light years away in direction of the Centaurus constellation. Anyway, what you see in this GIF that Keith was able to post on the uh, guest page is this uh, time-lapse photography taken over five years with the time demarcation at the very top, the number of days from the explosion of the supernova. And you can see this, this light echo, this... of shells of light like rings spreading outward from the site of the explosion what is that that is the light the intense light of the supernova reflecting off the clouds of interstellar dust that hang out in space between the stars in all galaxies in areas that are thicker and thinner and If you have a thick area, it will reflect light very efficiently. And at some point in the image at um, one, let me do it again here, at one nine nine one days, almost 2000 days after the explosion, like five years, the echo becomes double. You can see an inner shell and an outer shell briefly because this sequence is going by quite fast. That's dust clouds reflecting the light from the central point source supernova blowing up, becoming briefly as bright as the entire galaxy in which it is living. Uh, and this is just amazing. Now, the, the colored streaks, those are called diffraction uh, uh, lines, and they come from the Light scattering from a bright star just out of the <clears throat> field of view in the upper right-hand corner, and the slightly different orientation of the Hubble telescope relative to that star when the pictures were taken. So that's what that colored bar stuff doing, uh, bouncing around. That's that's just uh, scattering in the telescope from that bright star that's out of the field of view. But you can look at this again, and the more you look, the more you'll see. And you can see that everything else in the field of view is very constant, except for these incredible light echoes caused by the expansion of the light shell. Literally, the wave of intense light coming from the supernova, radiating outward at 186,000 miles per second, bouncing off the dust around the supernova, and then having a slightly longer path length. To get to earth and so you see this expanding ring and in the very last frame it's a double ring given that you've got inner and outer light shells that equally reflecting the energy it's just an amazing you know snapshot of um, what's going on all around us that in our incredibly brief may fly span of life most of us never ever ever get to see speeding of Speaking of brief lifespans, you know, I'll get the words out soon. Item number four. I did not realize until uh, a day or so ago that last night, the 4th of November, was exactly 100 years to the night from when Howard Carter, the British archaeologist who discovered King Tutankhamun's tomb in the Valley of the Kings, literally discovered the tomb 100 years ago last night. So item number four is a very interesting article in the Smithsonian. Uh, Read it carefully. It's well done. It's brilliantly illustrated. It's got all kinds of little nuggets that I didn't know about. But, of course, the reason that it's relevant to tonight is that, in essence, what our work has been saying for the last, uh, you know, several decades, at least 30 40 years is that Mars itself is kind of like a planetary tomb with all kinds of incredible artifacts memorializing an extraordinary ancient series of Martian civilizations that not only existed going back millions of years, but have been totally and resolutely ignored in public and in publications by the space agency that we fund. Every year to the tune of something like $20 billion, give or take, 19.5, one year, uh, to find out if we're all alone. And they've been lying to us about that, too. I mean, what have they been up to and why have we been paying them to basically not tell us the truth? Well, that's the item of item number five, which is an article I did on the problem of the environment of Mars Going back now, literally 20 years. I wrote this in 2002. Um, I came across it the other day in preparing for tonight, and I read it. Of course, you got to read stuff, you know. It was so old that you don't remember what you wrote. It really holds up. Everything I said in this piece is still true, because NASA still is demonstrably, as you're going to see tonight, not telling us the truth about what's on Mars. And let me give you an example where I was there at JPL watching the beginning of this extraordinary lie literally go down. Um, In fact, let me just read from the piece. Um, Perhaps the most infamous account of the color of the atmosphere of Mars that still swirls around the release by JPL over a quarter of a century ago of the first true color Viking lander image just one day after Viking touched down in the pre-dawn darkness Pacific time of July 20th, 1976. A few hours of that historic publication, the release of the first color photograph from the surface of Mars, another hurriedly revised version of this first color surface image was suddenly produced. Correcting, JPL said, the initial color engineering problems of the first image. Decades later, one of those personally present at JPL, besides me, and curiously involved would relate a very different story of the incident. The witness was the son of the scientist in charge of one of Viking's three historic biology investigations, labeled release experiment, principal investigator Dr. Gilbert Levin. His son, name is Dr. Ron Levin, who is now also a scientist, a physicist at MIT. In the summer of 1976, when Viking landed, Ron was a newly graduated high school student assisting his father at JPL during that incomparable Viking summer, where I was present also covering the Viking story for millions of readers of a major magazine and a couple of broadcast TV networks. The following is from Levin's firsthand recollection of the whole affair. Recounted in a recent book by science writer Barry de Gregorio, the remarkable overreaction by JPL that occurred in response to Ron Levin's naive efforts to correct what seemed to him that July afternoon to be, quote, a deliberate, if perplexing, methodical distortion of the incoming lander Viking data. This is from Mars, the Living Planet by D. Gregorio Gilbert Levin and uh, uh, Phyllis Stratt, uh, published by Frog Limited in Berkeley in 1997. So here is De Gregorio's narrative. At about 2 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, the first color image from the surface of another planet, Mars, began to emerge on the JPL color video monitors located in many of the surrounding buildings, specifically set up for JPL employees and the media personally to view the Viking images. Gail and Ron Levin sat in the main control room where dozens of video monitors and anxious technicians waited to see this historic first color picture. As the image developed on the monitors, the crowd of scientists, technicians, and media reacted enthusiastically to a scene that would be absolutely unforgettable, Mars in color. The image showed an Arizona-like landscape, blue sky, brownish-red desert soil, and gray rocks with green splotches. Gil Levin commented to Patricia Strat his co-investigator, and his son, Ron, look at the image. It looks just like Arizona. Now, I can attest as a kind of editorial site here that I was standing in the JPL von Kammer Auditorium literally next to Carl Sagan when the image started coming in on the monitors. And Carl turned to a bunch of us and he said, it looks like Arizona. Back to Dig Gregorio. Two hours after the first color image appeared on the monitors, a technician abruptly came into the room, changed the image from the light blue sky and Arizona-like landscape to a uniform orange-red sky and landscape that Ron Levin looked at in disbelief as the technician went from monitor to monitor, making the changes. Minutes later, Ron followed him, resetting the colors to their original appearance. Levin and Strat were interrupted when they heard someone being chastised in the hall. It was Ron Levin being chewed out by the Viking Project director himself, James Martin. Gil Levin went immediately out in the hall and asked, what the hell's going on? Martin had caught Ron changing all the color monitors back to their original settings. He warned Ron, this was Martin, that if he tried something like that again, he'd be thrown out of JPL for good. The director then asked the TRW engineer assistant biology team, Ron Geely, to follow Ron Levin around to every color monitor and change them all back to the red landscape. When Gil Levin, Ron and Patricia Strat did not know, even at this writing, is that the order to change the colors came directly from the NASA administrator himself, Dr. James Fletcher. Months later, Gil Levin sought out the JPL Viking Imaging Team technician who had actually made the changes and asked why it was done. The technician responded that he had instructions from the Viking Imaging Team that the Mars sky and landscape should be red and went around to all the monitors tweaking them to make it so. Gil Levin said the new setting showed the American flag painted on the landers as having purple stripes. The technician said that the Mars atmosphere made the flag appear that way. As someone who was at JPL that afternoon and vividly remembers a similar shock when the Arizona Mars initially flashed on the JPL monitors, suddenly transformed into a Martian red light district, I now kick myself for not asking lots more questions. But this was 1976, and we all trusted our space agency back then. And when we come back, what we're going to do is we're going to bring on our first guest of the evening, Holger Eisenberg, and we're going to talk about the extraordinary saga of the changing and bizarre interference with the real colors of Mars. In honor of Howard Carter's 100th anniversary of looking into King Tut's tomb, this is from The Land of the Pharaohs, music by Dmitry Tjomkin. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Howard Carter only had to uncover the of one tomb tonight we're going to try to penetrate the truth of an entire world we shall return
1: Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hudland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes.
0: And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for this Saturday night, November 5th, 2022. It's literally the 100th anniversary and a few hours when Howard Carter opened the tomb, found the tomb, looked inside. And when his colleague said, I mean, he's holding this flickering candle. What do you see? And Carter is uh, recorded as saying, Things, wonderful things. Well, there are wonderful things all over the planet Mars. We haven't been inside yet to see what's inside these extraordinary ancient structures, some of which are still standing in magnificent ruin and some of the imaging. But we do have a overview now of the environment of Mars, and we know that NASA has been vigorously, consistently, and with bizarre persistence, literally lying to us about the environment of an entire world. The question I have had, and I don't think we're going to be able to answer it tonight, but we may have a few flickers of uh, uh, information as to what might be going on, is why would they have been doing this, and so consistently, for so many years? So, what I've done tonight is I've put together a group of people, a panel, that I think uh, will be very um, helpful in answering the question. And my first guest tonight is someone who's been on the show many times before. We go way, way, way back when. In fact, Colger even wound up here in Albuquerque and we had a wonderful dinner, he and Robin and I, many years ago at a beautiful little restaurant down uh, downtown. Uh, Holger has done systems operation and consulting around Java-based enterprise applications since 1999 in Germany. And he moved in 2016 to Silicon Valley, and he now solves customer problems at a company that specializes in providing high performance for Java VMS. In his spare time, he applies software engineering skills on public data provided by MARS spaceflight missions, which include NASA missions and ESA missions. Uh, I'm not sure whether he's worked any on the Chinese mission, but we will find out tonight. While he's been working on this data uh, as an independent researcher, he investigated many, many years ago mysteries surrounding the 1997 Mars Pathfinder mission. Since then, he's offered public software services and tools to be followed like true color photo browsers over the Pathfinder Spirit and Opportunity missions, or space mission imaging raw converters. Data archaeology on historic Viking like lander camera tapes has also been one of his projects. It's difficult to convince him about other sky colors on Mars other than human-friendly blue. Anyway, without further ado, Holger, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. And for the new people in the audience, kind of recount in your own words, how do you get caught up in this Sherlock Holmes level mystery that for more than 50 years, NASA, for some reason, has been lying about the atmosphere of Mars?
2: Oh, that was a long introduction. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> it's good to be back here, again. Okay. yeah. It's a long story, indeed. We
3: have uh,
0: time. Decades. That's the beauty yeah. of long-form radio. We and, have time. And it's, so,
2: start. And at it's the surprisingly, it's surprisingly consistent over the years, at least what you hear in the public, and hopefully uh, some news from the website. I, I manage, mm-hmm. uh, but it's indeed it's the same topic as 20 years ago. You had in the article, and I also worked on. But uh, and there not not much has changed. Even with um, with the modern two rovers now online on the on the planet with the new camera technology, still the same results.
0: <laughs> so start at the beginning. What got you intrigued with the Viking color that made you say, "Wait a minute, there's
2: something not right here"? Yeah, back then uh, in the uh, late 90s, it, it was some. The, the first start was the technology because I, I worked at a software company, studied uh, computer science at college, and uh, the internet was uh, relatively new, only a few years old. And compared to uh, to information sources you had uh, outside of the online world, then back then it was uh, libraries, uh, paper magazines. The, the internet with uh, fast uh, data access to raw data from science missions—it was something completely new back then. And that you, especially that you c- could access it from from home—that uh, was uh, revolutionary at that time. <laughs> now everyone is running around with uh, with uh, direct access. On the phone which didn't exist and 20 years ago was 25 years ago and that, that was one uh, motivation to look what what is possible so you were kind of just technology. poking around you
0: were poking around in the archives and you came across yeah, well, the
2: viking color data yeah what what you call today web surfing <laughs> that uh, there weren't that there weren't 10,000 of websites back then. Uh, NASA had a big website. Uh, other in, uh, research institutes had, uh, had their websites, universities, some few magazines, and there wasn't that much more. And, and you could access uh, direct the, the data from the Pathfinder mission, from the Mars Global Surveyor, which was, which was also new at that time in 97, 98. And that was amazing to download the images there with uh, which which are which uh, barely fitted onto the computer back then in their large sizes and uh, let's uh, find out what could be done with them and how they how they really look like well if people
0: want to actually see what you saw which i of course saw live because i was there at jpl when this all went down Go to item number six in my section. On the left is the original color Arizona-like view that NASA released with much fanfare that afternoon on the 21st of July. And then on the right, a few hours later, is this bizarre red red light district landscape that I talk about. And that's been the bizarre color of Mars now since 1976 with some interesting kind of interruptions and inconsistencies, but basically uh, they turn Mars into literally a red planet. And we now have this on the record um, statement from Di Gregorio, who went and found the technician through Gil Levin, who was ordered to change all those monitors that afternoon from Ron Levin's tweaking back to what it has been. And we know that his order came directly from the head of NASA, Dr. James Fletcher, in Washington, D.C. And he, he furthermore, and there's more testimony further down in my article from one of the imaging uh, public relations people who was handing out color pictures to the press back then. His name was Yuri Vandervood. I think he was Dutch. Anyway, he said he literally had orders from Fletcher to not only not release the first color image showing blue skies but to destroy to burn to completely obliterate the negative so that you would never ever see a blue sky on mars again from biking and of course this was pre-digital storage so they thought they were kind of changing history and again it always struck me as bizarre because science progresses not only by your successes But by your mistakes, they claim there was a light leak in the photo imaging system in the camera that caused this false blue color. Well, if that was true, wouldn't you want to hang on to the data so you could make sure you never had that technical problem message? Uh, Ram has dropped off the, the web. We'll get him back. Anyway, I would think you'd want to preserve all the historical data. But according to one of the JPL employees, Fletcher told him to destroy that color negative so it could never be reproduced. Of course, forgetting that in a digital world, um, you can never really totally destroy anything except maybe Secret Service texts. So, Holger, please continue.
2: Uh, There there are indeed two interesting points with that history story. And uh, first, that the color image was shown live on TV. Yep. You could switch on TV, another TV back then uh, on, on public television and uh, see the three color channels appearing within a few seconds, over one minute maybe back then. That was live. And there were many journalists, engineers, scientists, all in the same room at JPL at the von Kármán auditory. That was, uh, I guess, that, that uh, mixing together of different people, this openness that doesn't exist anymore today. Because you still have the press conferences, but it's a perseverance rover or curiosity. You had to wait uh, a few days for the first uh, color image. And then it wasn't directly published, only in in some strange uh, blurry way because the dust cap was on. And... uh, The journalists could ask questions, but only limited to a channel without any direct contact to to the local scientists or engineers. So this uh, informal collaboration that uh, doesn't exist anymore today. And, And the image itself is pair of two different colorizations. You see here with the blue sky on the left and red sky on the right that you find today still with uh, press release images of perseverance or curiosity. And uh, image caption is then uh, the left side is white balanced uh, to make it appearing like uh, lit by sunlight on Earth for geologists. And the other one is a real surface color like you would see uh, when standing on the surface. That is the image as uh, a caption, the image caption. I'm, my result is different uh, we continue to talk about today but uh, it's it's the same style of presentation today then
0: so which image um are we talking about your images or my image
2: oh uh, yeah your image oh, already okay, okay. and okay. Uh, the the style of the official images on the on another the website is still the same you, you even you can see even two different types of calibrations, colorizations, now mostly uh, that the same image is shown in two different uh, settings.
0: Well, you sent me an image, a, a, a mosaic you made up a few days ago based on historical data going all the way, almost all the way back to Viking. I guess it did go to Viking. And we put that up tonight as a banner and then we posted it as your item number one uh, without you know lettering so people can see that's all real color images from the surface of Mars by a variety of NASA missions and the sky and the landscape and the color is, you talk about consistency. There is no consistency. It's all (laughs) over the map. And yet science is supposed if it's real science, it's supposed to be consistent because these are all supposed to be carefully calibrated, meticulously checked out, no single point failure cameras on mission after mission after mission. And just look at that mosaic. Mars is any damn color NASA chooses after they've had lunch on a given Thursday to put out to the public. It's bizarre.
2: Yeah, yes, it's, uh, especially for for those who are not working in professional photography or doing much photography with with raw images, that is that must be confusing, <laughs> and it is. Well, I think it's it meant is, to be confusing. Could could also be yes, uh, uh, on uh, from my engineering perspective, uh, of course you you can have some, some strange. Differences, effects, if you do photography on Earth, you also see some variations in, in that, but uh, for, for scientific... Uh, well, look politics. at how many
0: different images you got there. You've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 images in that mosaic. The color on each image is different totally different than the one right next to it and these are supposed to be scientifically calibrated color and and there are manuals inch thick manuals detailing the elaborate tests they've done on earth and in controlled dark rooms with color charts and you know color temperature lamps and in other words incredible amount of effort and millions of dollars spent on calibrating and you get to mars And no two images look the same. And it's completely, totally baffling to your average American taxpayer paying these guys. They can't even shoot straight.
2: And if if you see uh, normal photography on Earth of the same location on Earth, a famous tourist spot, for example, if you look up images on on the web, you have some variations, but in general, they, they really look similar. You you recognize the situation and you see the similarities. Uh, well, it it's, that, it's, that a, it's a, are white and the sand you have sand colors on it, the ground that you don't have purple it's, or green colors then. <laughs> of it's different. a
0: well-known phenomenon. You take a picture of a certain scene at noon, and then you take it around sunset. The color is going to be redder at sunset. Why? Because sunsets are red. Why? Because of the way the Earth's atmosphere scatters color, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that can be allowed for. And back in the days when we only used film, you used to use daylight film. Uh, when you shot inside at night they had film that was balanced for what they call tungsten or um, you know, warm colors, much lower color temperature lighting. Um there was a, a huge effort. To try to get a color that was consistent, but when you look at what NASA's done on Mars, where we've spent literally billions of dollars to get these pictures, no two of those thirteen images in your mosaic is anywhere close to being similar or the same.
2: Nowhere. Yeah. Also, if you look at chemical photography from years ago, before the digital cameras appeared, you had uh, you mean you mean film. film? By the way, yeah, color, color slides for example, yeah. the positive image that You you just take the picture. Your your your
0: your, your, mic, topic, your 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 mic your your mic has dropped off for some reason.
2: Oh, oh, say something. Oh, I'm I'm checking the
0: sound here. Okay, you're back. Yes. Okay. Yeah, you know, mics do that for some reason. Ah,
2: uh, it's it's a. It's a Automatic uh, noise reduction. Yeah, I, I got it under control. Yeah, if you compare it with uh, chemical photography with, with film years ago, right? You, you, you could purchase a color slide film and then take photos outside at noon, even at afternoon or in the morning, or even under uh, uh, cloudy sky or blue sky. And you always could got some somehow usable photos. It was really result.
0: close. It was you know if you were really yeah. an artist, if you really looked carefully, you could see subtle differences, but not like that damn mosaic, as your item yeah. number one from Mars. So you said at the top of the show, you said, well, at least they're being consistent. And my <laughs> my rejoinder is they're being consistently inconsistent. You just came from presenting a paper. On the latest Mars lander, the Perseverance lander in Jezero crater that lasted, lasted landed a little over a year ago, uh, about a year and a half ago on Mars, almost now two years, I think. And you had some very interesting experiences presenting this paper. So why don't we pick up on the 50 years of consistent inconsistency of NASA images of Mars?
2: Yeah, that was at the Mars Society Convention three uh, weeks ago in uh, Phoenix, Tempe, at the ASU University. Uh, That was International Mars Society Convention and the first one in person since uh, two years. It was uh, nice to meet uh, people there again and uh, see presentations from another scientist also, engineers, uh, private enterprises. It was a good gathering together there and i also showed uh, a presentation about a similar topic as here use and i today i show even some slides from this presentations here it, it was a bit more technical but let's see what you can what i can uh, present here was possible and it it is a bit similar to what i just explained with the color slide film you had a fixed setting on the camera and you could produce uh, Usable photos for projecting them at home or getting a print from it without much adjustment and That I try to reproduce in the digital world with digital photography And to get to the slides you go to the Show page and then Holgas items. It's a separate page if you just see Richard items, you need to go to fast links to items, Holger, and then get to the 20 photos there, items there. And uh, let's uh, start with uh, number one, uh, number 12. 12 is it?
0: Uh, the whole mass globe there, twice right.
2: visible. You,
0: you want to go down to number 12? Yeah. Okay, number because 12. You want to start with the uh, calibration now, yeah. <laughs> You don't mean 12, you mean 2. Or do you
2: mean 12? Uh, 12, because the other are uh, of the normal observatory. Okay, all so, right. So if you want go back to... Uh, uh, Richard,
4: Richard. Yes, Holger, Holger? Just, just so you know, I'm here. I finally found a stable spot, so I, I apologize.
0: No problem. Okay, Holger, I couldn't get so, connection. So,
2: we're, so we're clicking go on number
4: 12.
2: We're clicking on yeah. Yeah. number
0: 12. Number 12, right? Yeah,
2: and there we see uh, Mars mass from the outside, from space. And uh, there the question is, uh, create a photo which would be similar to uh, a normal color slide film camera, uh, which that would produce if you take a photo from space there, or if you uh, are yourself in this position there above the planet and look down on it and uh, how to do it it's uh, first you get uh, the raw information from the camera that is digitally in this case from the Emirates Mars mission so a different uh, orbiter mission now Emirates
0: your sound quality is varying are you varying your distance from the mic Uh, no but uh, it
2: could be again this automatic uh, well kill it beat it to
0: death with a stick We, we don't need AGC, that's Automatic Gain Control for you audiophiles. Input. I'll
2: try it here, uh, okay, now, I you're, know you're, I have, now you're know back, now I have it again, yeah, is it good?
0: Okay, now you're back. Okay, so the number 12 is basically how do you calibrate a picture of Mars taken from the Earth, from spacecraft, from Hubble? I recognize the image on the right is the Hubble dust storm image from 2001. The image on the left is the uh, United Arab Emirates camera on their spacecraft that they sent to Mars, and the little Mars on the bottom right. Where would that come from?
2: Uh, that is just for comparison. That is both images on the right are taken by the Hubble. Ah, okay. Okay,
0: okay so the, the same one.
2: Camera, but, uh, so the it's small a different
0: season. The small, the small image is a non-dust storm image.
2: Correct, yeah. Yeah.
0: Because what yeah. I did, in fact, if, if we want to go back up to my number, oh, hang on a second here. Let me get, click on me. Go to my number uh, nine. Number nine, okay? This is the same Hubble image that was taken during the 2001 dust storm and the thing that struck me is so amazing, and these are out of sequence, is if you, if you zoom in on the limb, which from space is the edge of the planet, where it you know goes from the surface up to space, you can see the, the atmosphere. And on the dust, uh, uh, image, dust storm image taken by Hubble, the atmosphere is a brilliant green. Now, why is this interesting? Because if the real sky is really blue... Like on Earth, Rayleigh scattering produces blue uh, atmosphere, blue color of the sky. You know, mommy, why is the sky blue? Because of Rayleigh scattering, dear. Okay. If you add yellow Martian dust from a dust storm to blue, remember back in, you know, kindergarten when you were doing crayons, the teacher would say, well, if you mix yellow uh, and blue, you get green. Lo and behold, you mix Yellow dust with a blue scattering atmosphere, you get green. And that Hubble picture with that enlargement in my number nine shows exactly what you should see when you add color to color and get something that we learned when we were playing with crayons back before uh, grammar school.
2: The, uh, the green, if it's really created by dust, uh, I'm not, because on Earth you can also see a green uh, border during sunset time. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's in, it's, but it's also just from, from the spectrum, because green is between blue and red. Sure, if you have a transition from blue sky to red dusty sky, then green is in between. That, that could explain it.
0: Well, it's called additive color. You know, it's it's yeah. it's basically color theory. Now, if you want to look at item number eight, this is an enlargement taken from a photograph that the astronauts took from ISIS through a porthole. Just an ordinary color photograph. And then on the right, there is a uh, uh, enlargement of a photograph of Mars taken by uh, Malin's wide-angle color camera on the MGS spacecraft. And you can see that in profile... The atmosphere of Mars when there's no dust is blue and the atmosphere of earth when there's no dust is blue and they look identical on two separate worlds and there's nothing, no mystery, no bizarre color shifts, whatever. And that is further amplified by image number seven in my compilation. So anyway, back to Holder's images.
2: Uh, yeah. Yeah. It is the same uh, color of the atmosphere because the camera is set to the same setting and the setting is to to uh, for is set for uh, sunlight in space because sunlight in space is constant outside of the atmosphere you have the same sun shining to all planets without any interference between the sun and the planetary outer atmosphere and if you It's the same camera setting pointing at two different planets and they're showing the same blue fringe around the limb. It is the same blue in there.
0: See, that's where you start from because that's how you calibrate images. You shoot known pictures of known uh, subjects that have known parameters, in this case known colors. And then you take a picture of an unknown with that, quote, calibrated camera And whatever you see is what you get. In other words, that's reality. But what NASA has done is to completely intervene in that process, which is how you get all those bizarre varying colors that we see in item number one of Holger's uh, images tonight. Okay, we are at the top of the hour. So what we're going to do is pause. And I'm going to, uh, when we come back, I'm going to bring on, Uh, Ron Gerbron and Andrew Curry, and we're going to mix this up a little bit where we talk about why is NASA doing this from each of their experiences with Martian color. We're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. uh,
1: C. Tompkins,
0: Richard C. Hoagland. We're playing music from uh, the land of the Pharaohs in honor of Howard Carter's 100th anniversary of looking into Commons Tomb, music by Dmitry Tiamkin. We shall return. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, November 5th, 2022. One hundred years in a few hours since Howard Carter first peeked in to Tutankhamun's tomb and saw wonderful things. My guest tonight is Holger Eisenberg and Ron Gerbron and Andrew Curry. Ron Gerbron is our resident generalist. He actually for a time, went to two <clears throat> universities simultaneously, Stanford and Berkeley, and thereby hangs a tale. So i like, we probably should have Ron, you know, go over that story again because it's kind of really interesting as to the things he learned and the things he learned that he did not want to learn about attending two universities. The other individual we're going to bring on is Andrew Curry, who was our resident uh, Hollywood and commercial storyboard artist who has done extraordinary representations of some of the NASA imagery, most recently depicting the building-like ruins that you can see clearly in the leaked Lea image uh, from the uh, Italian CubeSat that flew by the little um, uh, diminutive, quote, asteroid um, about 1,500 feet across. I'm I'm sorry, uh, yeah, 1,500 feet Uh, Half a mile, I'm sorry, half a mile, called Didymos, and it flew by a few miles away, took some exquisite imagery, which uh, we've only seen one so far. But on that image, you can see, particularly when it's emphasized by Andrew's uh, very important artwork, that there are buildings, three-dimensional artificial constructs, architecture on the surface of Didymos, which we may get to see in much better detail when the European space agency Hera mission arrives at Didymos for its own reconnaissance in 2026. So Ron, let me turn to you first. You've been doing a kind of a survey of the colors of Mars. You have actually assembled some interesting examples in your section tonight of radio with pictures. So you, Simply go to the banner on the guest page, click on Ron's name. That will take you to his section of Radio with Pictures. And I see your number one there is a very interesting comparison of uh, Viking starting a Viking again. Um, What what is your impression of what NASA has done? And more important, maybe, why the hell they've been lying about a whole damn planet for over half a century?
4: Ah, yeah, that is the uh, principal question. What would make them do this? Because the uh, the actual lying... Hi, everybody. Sorry that my phone hasn't been Did we lose Ron? Did he just drop off again?
0: Ah, we've got to solve Ron's communication problems. Andrew, come to the rescue.
6: <laughs> well, you know... Uh, Richard, what this reminds it's funny that you should bring up Egypt and 100 years ago, because it really, to me, brings to mind the old um, Egyptian travel posters, you know, all that sort of art deco travel stuff uh, from, I guess it would have been early 20th century. And all those posters romanticized, you know, like faraway places, uh, mystical spots, and made it attractive to go there. And it seems to me, when you related your story, and when Holger's, you know, really drilling down and looking at the sort of technical side of this, that they're really trying hard to make it unpleasant. They did
0: exactly <laughs> the opposite. Yeah. You know, Mars has been at the heart of this romance and lure and exactly. escapism and and exactly. uh,
7: uh,
0: seduction of space, space travel, space flight, funding, space flight, funding, exactly. NASA. You know, remember the old cliche, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. Mm -hmm. NASA has done everything they could for half a century to turn this magical, mysterious, incredibly crucial world to human existence, origins, and development into a place, paraphrasing Elton John, where you would never want to raise your kids.
3: They've made it
0: look horrible And we know from that first stunning brief couple hours old Viking color image, actually quoting Sagan, damn it, it looks like Arizona.
6: Yeah, and that would have fulfilled uh, Von Braun and and Disney's advertising of going into space, what Brookings talked about, the Brookings report, and about how they have to prepare everybody and how you have to watch how you're going to bring children into the space age. And that's just going to set imagination's on fire and like you said there's going to be an upward pressure hey we got to go there and there might have been more of an appetite to pay for it but for some reason and and, and it's reaction like when you read from your article like how everybody was like oh wow it's like postcards from phoenix you know like, like it was almost that flavor and everybody you, know, you could just tell right well, away they,
0: i mean you've seen enough video of sagan to know he had this incredible droll sense of humor yes. He's standing around, you know, rubbing shoulders with the Hoy paloi, which is just us guys in the press corps. Yeah, and he's having so much fun, and there's this exactly. grin on his face, and he's looking, he's pointing. He says, "Any minute now, Yosemite Sam is going to come
4: in stage you're right." <laughs> it's a full. I stage. don't know about Yosemite Sam, but I got, <laughs> I got my phone back. Hey, Ron, there you are. Sorry. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Uh, yeah, no, you're saying the same thing that I was starting to say. So maybe well, well, then
0: you take over from Andrew, you all, but... and we'll bring Andrew on oh. in a couple of minutes. So go for it while we have your phone.
4: Okay. Well, I know Andrew's got more uh, important data on his roster than this. But what I was going to say is, you asked about how. Why would they do this? Uh, it's yeah. politics in yeah in the basis sense see that's what i got as soon as i came back they uh, usually some politician gets caught in a parking lot with someone inappropriate uh, or something and the news just they get they issue three contradictory press releases and then the whole thing kind of goes away because people get confused and tired of it and i think they thought they could pull that same sort of thing with uh mars But the one thing that does come out of that is that they must have had some prior reason to think that. Think of Roswell. When uh, the first reaction was the local paper said, hey, we caught a flying saucer. And everybody went, oh, this is interesting. And then within what, 24, 36 hours, uh, they had to retract that and says, oh, no, it's just fluff. And, you know, everybody's heard those. No,
0: they said it was aluminum (laughs) foil.
4: Yeah,
0: from a weather balloon, a radar reflector on a weather balloon.
4: Yes, and um, the um, poor officer saddled with passing that story along did not look happy. And some say that in the back of that one picture where he's holding up the foil Mm -hmm. on his office floor and looking really kind of pissed, (laughs) Uh, if you look behind him. There's some of the real wreckage still stuck – sticking out from the closet or um, alcove behind him. Anyway, that was obviously ridiculous, but they were pushing that little let's try – let's give three crazy stories, and then the whole thing will go away. And um, so that means that they had some reason to protect it. Uh, by they, I mean everybody but the local See, this newspaper is what, so, this is and This stuff. is what I
0: run into for – Uh, The last, you know, 30, 40 years I've been doing this, trying to get people to pay attention to ancient artificial structures on the planet Mars. One of the things I've I've met again and again and again from major correspondents at major newspapers like the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post, uh, Joel Achenbach, you know, really grilled me one day on this, or people like, uh, you know, network people, anchors and correspondents I worked with at CBS, NBC, ABC, CNN. The thing they kept saying was, but Hoagland, if this was real, this would be a gold card for NASA. They would have unlimited funds. The public would go crazy. They'd be jumping up and down. NASA could write its own ticket. Why the hell would they ever lie about something like this, given that it would give them a wheelbarrow full of money and endless budgets for, you know, to the horizon and beyond. And when I try to tell them, no, there's a hidden agenda, they just sign off the curve because to them, the only driver of politics ultimately is money. Given that this is so counterintuitive, this is driving a stake through the heart of a source for NASA for money. They can't understand from the get go why NASA would be doing this. And when it comes to the atmosphere and lying about a whole damn planet they've done everything they can to kill public interest in mars while holding out plaintively but someday we might find life there
4: i got a real good reason why they wouldn't use that argument i think which one I mean, of theirs which argument uh well the whole i the whole idea of uh using it as a way to raise money yeah. uh in in the in the daylight you know like wow we need to fund this and we need to fund that and we need to look at the other thing uh who was behind the initial discoveries uh really not just um what would become JPL or anything else it was the military you know and what uh, thinking... what do you mean initial discoveries of what well, I'm thinking that they got clues. In, let's leave out any overt um, intervention or cannabling for a moment. Um, just even without any of that, they would have said, "You know what? There's something going on with Mars. Uh, we've got, and we've got all these other sources that talk about ancient um, civilizations, and maybe there's some connection there, and so forth." But they would be thinking of the technology they could find. And what's that technology for? The first thing that's always done is to try and turn it into a weapon. And so that's a military purpose, so to say, uh, to disregard that that there would be a very powerful faction.
0: Yeah, but the military Uh, requires public support to get funding. Yeah, well, there's one thing in politics that's more
4: important than money, power.
0: But they're connected inseparably. Money and power you cannot separate them.
4: If you have power you'll get money. If you have money you won't get no, the
0: money get leads power. to power. Power does not lead to money. Andrew. Yeah, you
6: get it. Andrew, help me out here. Well, I'm I'm <laughs> curious on what Holger thinks, Richard, because I'm looking at your number one, Holger, and I'm like, Whoa <laughs> and, and I mean, what do you think? Why you, do mean, you, think? you
0: you mean his number one all over the map mosaic of yeah. official images taken by NASA claiming yeah. these are super scientific calibrated images and you can't spot one rock in any image that looks like the same rock in another image because
6: they're all yeah. they're all totally, totally different. Yeah. And I just wonder, Holger, what do you think? Like why are they covering up like the simplest of things, the color of the sky?
2: So I, I was also thinking about that uh, already uh, some years ago when I, when I developed the first images. Uh, and one, one idea was uh, uh, maybe uh, someone wants to show the planet in a way uh, that you only want to send robots there, hostile with uh, low contrast. Uh, yeah, in other words, you want to make it look as bad as
0: possible, and, as hostile as possible.
2: We are not inviting, especially also the temperature. Maybe we yes. can do that later. Cold, horrible cold, and nothing for humans there. Humans should not go there. It should stay on Earth. That that was one idea that could be behind, but I have to say, not not everyone. Uh, I was continuing uh, of thinking like that, but uh, maybe uh, some group was. was uh, oh,
4: I think the... you're 100 percent right. You know, that's right on. But that's right on point. They're trying to make the play by they again. We'll just put a capital T on it and worry about who that represents later. Uh, they uh, they are uh, very concerned with having people less than interested in Mars, or if they are going there. To have nothing but worries, you know. Can we breathe it? Will the radiation fry us? Are there robots sitting here that are going to shoot at us? Uh, it's again. That that seems like awfully military thinking to me. But, so when, th- but, but remember, NASA is funded
0: by the Congress. The military is funded by the Congress. Hmm. Ultimately, the source of money is the Congress representatives of the taxpayer, the people. And you know, three days we got an election to elect those people that are going to appropriate money. For NASA, So when they testify, and there's miles and miles of videotape about this, inevitably in the congressional testimony by NASA scientists and administrators and personnel to the Congress asking for money, they will bring up the subject of Mars and life on Mars, and we only need a little more money to send the definitive mission to Mars to ultimately find out if there was or is current life there. So we have this incredible paradoxical dichotomy between visibly trying to make the place look like hell and begging the guys with the, with the purse strings to give them money to find the one thing that the American people will support space for, which is finding out if we, in
2: fact, are alone. Could also be, an, but one factor maybe, if maybe they didn't saw the chance to send humans, they didn't saw the technology, technological development ongoing that they were thinking, uh, at least those who published this with you, that uh, we, we cannot show it like this now because we cannot do it now because we have some other program ongoing like the space shuttle, which was not for exploration. The space Shuttle was for low Earth or bit earth uh, missions, and because we have that, we cannot spend money for human space flight like to Mars and and uh, make the best out of it, and then at least uh, focus on robots there maybe but see that
0: you doesn't know, make go ahead run go ahead
4: I was gonna say, yeah well, I was just qu- I was just going to requote something from your opening sequence there the uh the offhand remark about how much NASA costs you know, the, the $20 billion figure, uh, there is equipment in <laughs> the military and the scientific uh, uh, arena that costs that much. You know, you can get a CAT scanner if you want to have one in your basement, if you're a real hypochondriac, for a couple hundred thousand dollars or maybe half a million. But uh, if they've got secret aircraft and Evan knows boats, I know the uh, that funny looking streamlined uh, boat that 's supposed to be the boat of the future, the one with no radar signature and you know all sleek and pointy like a science fiction picture uh, that costs several billion dollars. There are fighter planes that cost a billion, so twenty billion is not really anything
0: the NASA that, budget uh, in, in that arena when we were getting ready to do Apollo which I was a distant part of, very distant, but I was a part of it through Grumman. I wrote the section in the Grumman Press book to the entire world about why we should go to the moon. It's right there. Black and white. Historic. Very historic. It's amazing how that holds up all these decades later. NASA's budget per year, per fiscal year, was about four to percent of the national budget. In other words, if the national budget is equated to a dollar, the equivalent portion of NASA's budget was five cents on the dollar max. Now, in 2022, NASA's percentage of the national appropriated budget, the annual fiscal budget, is less than 1%, more like half a percent, which is half a penny compared to a dollar. In other words, it shrunk by a factor of 10 over the intervening fifty years since NASA was created and yet we're doing so many so much more, comparatively speaking, which is a measure of the incredible efficiency of technology, technology development. The idea, Holger, that you can sit in your living room there, in your apartment in California, and now look into archives for imagery that was taken fifty years ago by incredibly primitive NASA missions, and you can bring modern imaging algorithms to this ancient digital data and bring out more of the data now than was seen 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And you can do it in your living room. That's a measure of how incredibly efficient we have become to do more and more and more
4: with less and less and less.
0: Which is... Sure. Exact...
4: What did a color television cost in 1963?
0: I bought a big uh, screen TV for Robin and me like, uh, what, maybe 15 years ago, 10 years ago. It cost me over two grand. That same size television now is 300 bucks. And there's yeah. nothing different except the technology, the production, the skill, the efficiency of the production of that product. And the product itself has gotten so much better, not because people work harder or people are smarter or whatever. It's because the technology has enabled the efficiency to get close to the limits of physical laws to where now it's so incredibly cheaper to do the same thing we did 15 years ago. that was much, much, much more. I mean, she was really upset with me for getting the big screen TV. And then she got to watch it an awful lot.
6: (laughs) Well, Richard, that goes to that goes to Holger's point that you know maybe the robots were the best idea first until well, let's not stoke anybody's imagination too much but until see, our.
0: see, that doesn't make any sense because you know your 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 reach should always exceed your
6: grasp. Well, you know that, and I know that, but you and I have been going over every in the back
0: educator <laughs> says this that what they're in charge of trying to inspire imagination in kids. So they don't wind up as drones. They wind up as, you know, little Einsteins or whatever. And the idea that they deliberately suppressed interest in Mars because they couldn't physically get there is nuts. I'm sorry, folks. It's, it's totally nuts. No, bottom line, given the fact that there are scores of ruins of ancient civilizations, plural, all over Mars, is the reason, Holger... They've been trying to stamp out burning ducks for 50 years, while at the same time luring people with the promise of some little bacterium that they'll find under some rock that will give them a breakthrough in understanding how life can live on two worlds. We are living in this schizophrenic parallel reality of needing public support and desperately fearing too much of it because they might pressure the politicians to ask the crucial question why the hell are we not on Mars tonight with people?
2: And, and we have this amazing technology developing over the years and also a good example from the Mars Society convention, there was one person Peter de Kluver, who showed his own built spacesuit there he built it at home for $4,000, a pressurized water-cooled spacesuit. He built himself, he showed it, he was standing in the suit in the auditorium there and uh, letting it run with a CO2 scrubber, everything complete, $4,000 instead of half a million dollar you get at the two companies who are producing spacesuits today. That was uh, some interesting uh, presentation there. For example, uh, the complicated water-cooling system in a spacesuit you can today purchase as commercial product for racing car drivers. They have it in their, be, below their uh, fire protection suit. They have the uh, same cooling system as a spacesuit.
0: Well, this was developed during Apollo by a company that was in my backyard when I lived in New England called Hamilton Standard in Windsor Locks, Connecticut. And it was part of what they called the PLIS, the Portable Life Support System, which was the backpack of the Apollo astronauts. And the idea was, well, the main problem on the moon is not, you know, freezing to death. It's because the temperatures, daytime temperatures are like 250 degrees above zero, which is the, the temperature of an average oven, you know, set on medium heat. So how do you get rid of the heat? NASA came up, the engineers at, at Hamilton Standard came up with the idea that you basically boil water and you evaporate water, taking the heat away from the astronaut. Well, how do you do that? Well, you literally have little old ladies in, in, in Dover, Delaware, at the um, uh, the LC Corporation that made the first Apollo spacesuits. You have them literally hand-sew little plastic tubing into sets of long-john underwear. So they basically are putting on a suit of, like, like, like a union suit, of long underwear from the Civil War era, and it's got all kinds of little plastic tubing running through it, and you run water through the tubing. The tubing is right up against your skin. The water is cooled. The cooling water takes the heat away from the astronaut, dumps it into a heat exchanger where it boils off a separate amount of water into the vacuum carrying the heat away, and now that incredibly one-of-a-kind invention that was invented by LLC there in Dover for the astronauts is now, as you said, commercially available for race car drivers and firefighters that go into burning buildings and they can rescue people because they're literally in a temperature controlled suit that's being cooled by evaporating water and they can survive much longer than in primitive uh, fire uh, kind of suits that uh,
4: basically use reflectivity to keep the heat away so they can rescue people. One version of that technology came from comic books, you know. No.
0: But you will tell well, us. It,
4: yeah, it's kind of a six degrees of Kevin Bacon thing. <laughs> but the original version on television of The Flash, oh. uh, The the suit that he wore, you know it's under that was done, that one i think was done in hollywood not up there where it's cooler so it's cooler. this is the guy where that Andrew... moves
0: so fast that literally the friction with the air would destroy him from
4: heat stroke right ah yes yes but the inventors were not the writers but the prop department they were charged with coming up with a cooling suit because you can't have the actor pouring out sweat like Niagara uh in every scene and it was that hot wearing the suit that had the right because it had contour padding in it. You know they didn't give them a personal trainer and say come back in six months when you're as buff as a as I a, uh, I don't know weightlifter or something. They uh, they needed that so they put them all in the suit and that made the suit incredibly hot. So they did the same thing you're describing. They had those same seamstresses or you know equivalents putting uh, tubing. Uh, in a suit and they had to make it camera presentable. You know, it's not that he was actually running the to get super hot. It was just it was hot, but it was up to the same level as those cooling apparatus for the suits, but they had to do it camouflaged, not in a great big clunky box hanging off the shoulders of the um uh, Person wearing it,
0: like a backpack, like an astronaut backpack.
4: Yeah, and this wasn't very. This wasn't very many years after. I forget what year that that show was on. It was on for like three years. Hmm. Uh, but the um, I'll tell you what, we're at the bottom now. of the hour. Anyway, that's Ho- all. Hold that thought.
0: My guests this morning are Holger Eisenberg and Ron Gerbrand and Andrew Curry, and we're talking about why is Mars in the focus of NASA's attention? Every plea for money is. But if you give us enough, we can, we can find life on Mars. At the same time that they're doctoring all the pictures to make Mars look, as Elton John said, like hell. Why? Here, on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland, Demetri Tjomkin in the background, from the movie Land of the Pharaohs, Howard Hawks, his only epic movie in cinemascope, in nineteen fifty-five as a stand-in for discovering this incredible ancient connection between Egypt and Mars. You're on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Welcome back everyone on this Saturday night, November 5th, 2022. As I said at the top of the show, it's the 100th anniversary in a few hours of Howard Hawk. No, not Howard Hawk. <laughs> God. Oh, I'm really losing it. I'm really losing it. Um, this is the anniversary of the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb in the Valley of the Kings, Howard Carter. Not Howard Hawks. Too many Howards on the show tonight. Howard Hawks was invited to do a spectacular decades later, and he finally chose an incredibly fictional story of the building of the Great Pyramid at Cheops by Khufu. And it was Joan Collins' first film role as a really evil vamp. Boy, was she good. Anyway, this is from the film. This is Dimitri Kiyomkin. This is the building of the pyramids, kind of in your imagination. Think of this scaled to Mars. Okay, back to my guest of the morning, Ron Gerbron and Holger Eisenberg and... um, uh, Andrew Curry, Holger, take us back to the Mars conference and talk about some of the other things that you discussed, and then lead us back to more of the slides.
2: Uh, oh, from the Mars conference, yeah, the, the spacesuit it was interesting. But uh, after after the conference, I visited uh, Flagstaff, north of Phoenix, uh, drove there, and there's the famous Lowell Observatory, where. Uh, Percession Lowell with his private enterprise built a nice telescope back in uh, early nineteen hundred yeah I, is, I,
0: uh, I, I, think... I, I think that's your item number three that's, a, yeah, that's three. a real photograph taken by Holger uh like a few weeks ago um there in in uh, on Mars Hill in Flagstaff. Robin and I went there in two thousand and three and I got to actually Look at Mars through uh, Lowell's famous 24-inch telescope, as well as take video images in color. And uh, I think I've presented some of those uh, on the Enterprise website over the years, but uh, that was an extraordinary experience, truly. I mean, don't you love that Victorian atmosphere in that dome?
2: I, I could only see it in the night yeah, uh, with the uh, red uh, lightning inside, but uh, if you look at photos from daylight, you see the, uh, all the floor and the walls are polished wood, it looks like a sailing ship inside, <laughs> and the telescope itself, this 10 meter long telescope in the middle there in the image item C that has uh, brass fittings at the viewing uh, end with uh, brass pipes and multiple smaller telescopes. So it's it's really a steampunk design of the 1920s you see in the old movies. (laughs) It's amazing. And you can visit it every day. Today, every evening, they are open for viewing there and the museum next to it. And during the day, it's uh, really nice. a private museum yeah a privately managed museum
6: and and holger if i may cut in um interesting that they li- they light it up with red red of course
2: yeah but that is a practical engineering background because uh, you can use really dark red light uh, to keep your eye sensitive okay. to dark light in the skies and because the eye is more sensitive to green light that you want to avoid, and you want to avoid too many colors there, and then uh, the dark red light is the best choice for that environment. Because if you watch the sky, you, you should adapt your eyes at least half an hour. So half an hour not looking into your phone or any bright light, to get adapted to the darkness, and then you can uh, look through the telescope or into the sky.
0: You know, they have apps now for smartphones where you literally can bring up, you know, sky images, maps of any part in the sky. You can zoom in. You can look at background. And the, and the screen is tinted red, so you don't destroy, when you're out in the field with your telescope, your dark adaptation. Because, again, the eye does not respond um, unfavorably red light and, and kill your dark adaptation for looking at the actual sky when you're under the actual sky
2: and I, I could look through the telescope, visitors can look through it, uh, it was a fix on Jupiter that day, uh, Mars was too low in the sky at that time uh, in the evening uh, later I was another telescope I could look at Mars, they have six modern telescopes next to this uh, dome here and uh, also one with an imaging camera on it. Uh, But Mars was really bad viewing at that day uh, because it was low on the sky on the horizon and it was only a blurry, sand-colored, orange-sand-colored spot there without any details. But it's amazing how Lowell back then uh, could make those uh, detailed drawings. And uh, you you have to wait for good season then, and uh, uh, adapt the telescope, uh, uh, even uh, reduce the diameter of the telescope to get a sharper vision, because planets are often too bright. Even. Jupiter was too bright in this telescope, for example, and it, it takes some time to to get a good viewing experience through the, through the direct view telescope without a camera.
0: Well, there's a whole learning curve when you're looking through an eyepiece at a real object in the sky, When you first look, you don't see anything. And then the more you look, there's some kind of a learning curve where your eye-brain combination kind of gets in sync. I was really, I mean, when I first looked through the Lowell telescope at Mars, it was like a a dancing, orangish, kind of pale, uh, pinkish blob. But the more I looked, I had like, uh, and of course, there were people, you know, saying, I'm going to look, I'm going to look. So, you know, didn't get a lot of time. But you come back to it and the more you looked, the more as the night progressed and we were there, the more I could see and I could easily imagine how Lowell and the other people that worked for Lowell back in the in the teens and the 20s, the more they looked at Mars uh, and got used to the um, idiosyncrasies of the Arizona desert and what it would do to uh, the steadiness of the atmosphere because some nights it's really bouncing all around and can't see anything. And other nights, it'll be almost frozen. It'll be so clear and so steady. And I mean, we had moments of steadiness. And I really could see how you could get into viewing with your eye across 30 plus million miles, another world and see details and features that would become really familiar as your eye brain combination got used to the
4: entire experience, like the equivalent of muscle memory.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, it kind of is because there's this whole you know muscle in your eye thing going on. So uh, you're you're trying to you know counteract the, the jumping images caused by the uh, atmosphere of, of the Earth. Hoger, you have two images or two graphs uh, published in in five and six in your section relating to Mars temperature as as determined by measurements carried out at Lowell. You want to talk a bit about them?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that was another research done back in the 1910s, 1920s at the observatory, also by Lowell personally before. And uh, he, his mission was, of course, because he heard about the observation by Schiaparelli in Italy, that uh, he saw channels, canali there. And Lowell's mission was to check out what is going on there. Is there a decaying civilization, creating channels? Uh, what he really saw, we don't exactly know. There are some interpretations that he saw uh, blood vessels of his own retina in the eye because he he, he, he created such a small viewing angle technically in the pew, in the. You find out the telescope that he created a, a microscope into his eye, technically. It could be, but maybe he saw really something. And uh, those straight lines, for example, we, we can today see on the moon. You have straight lines going outside from craters on the moon. It could be that some effect was going on there at, at Mars at some season. We don't know. But about the... Uh, items five to the seven, Well, yeah.
0: some some years ago, um, there were some am- – I mean, the amateur technology has so evolved. We're talking about the incredible efficiencies of technology these days compared to even only, you know, 15, 20 years ago. <clears throat> From the 1950s when we only had film to 2022 where now you have digital instant photography with extraordinary latitude, CCD, uh, d- d- detectors cameras uh, digital chips uh, filtering computer processing all of that um, I saw some amateur images some years ago, maybe five years ago, five or six, where literally some of the canals that Lowell had seen and drawn when he looked through this that twenty four inch telescope and his and his colleagues made drawings. Some of these amateur images and I probably should find them and put them up on the site um, done with modern CCD technology, which has nothing to do with you know, vascular uh, blood flow in the back of the human eye they show canal-like linear features in the same place on Mars that Lowell drew linear features, and they've been captured on amateur astronomer images taken from the earth. Now I'm a real big proponent of amateur astronomers because unlike the professionals who have this whole network of funding and political, you know, oversight and and permission and all of the background stuff that would get them to kind of skew data, amateurs are funding themselves. Amateurs now have technology which is equivalent to some of the best technology at the most high-end professional observatories on the planet. The difference being they're not getting funding from anybody but their own pocketbook or their neighbors, or, you know, when they uh, sell images on the web. So the idea that you can compare these objective CCD digital images of Mars with Lowell's sketches and drawings and see that there's definitely Something there on both sets of data done by two totally different technologies separated by like a 100 years. That says to me, again, independent verification of something important that's going on at the other end of the telescope.
2: could be also some some new atmospheric effect we don't yet know about, some plasma physics ongoing there on the atmosphere, uh, some effects triggered by the magnetic field, which is completely different than on Earth. Well, remember, Lowell's,
0: Lowell's original model was that he was seeing not, not, a, not a canal, not a strip of, of water, you know, with open... Water, Indeed, only lines. Yeah, that he, he was looked, only four lines.
7: Yeah, that, that, that
0: he was looking at lines, which I think in his telescopes, if you do the numbers, the resolution was he could only see linear things that are about thirty miles across. So you weren't seeing the canal; you were seeing, in his model, the vegetation growing by the canal that was being, um, uh, you know, uh, hydrolyzed by the water in the canal, producing abundant vegetation along the canal, and that's what showed up in telescopes millions of miles away on Earth. There's an alternative variant of that model that what we're seeing and photographing now, and of course you only see this in amateur images, you never see it on the Hubble images, you don't see it in any of the NASA spacecraft images, because of course they're under NASA control, But the amateur images are not under control. And what you might be seeing is a buried network of underground piping, tunneling, which used to carry water from one ancient part of Mars to another, built by an ancient, now extinct, civilization. And the system is leaking. And the leaking is migrating upward and is providing water for plant life growing on the surface and that's why the canals appear to be having a resurgence because Mars like Earth goes through these long planetary climate cycles and if we're coming into a cycle now where vegetation is more likely to to grow on the surface because of more beneficent conditions that's why we may be able to see and photograph again with amateur telescope digital technology, that which Lowell saw with his own eyes decades and decades ago.
2: Yeah, plant life is a good topic uh, because uh, mm. plant, life, uh, simple plants, algae, lesions uh, that, that we still cannot completely exclude. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is, and especially if you look at the, the early NASA cameras in the late 90s, early 2010s, they they were missing a green filter. They only had the blue and the red filter on the cameras, and the green was synthetically added. So we never knew really what was reflecting green light there. And the amateur telescope, sure, they had a normal RGB camera mm-hmm. with a green filter on it, a green channel on it. That was, uh, don't don't you find yeah.
0: that kind of weird? <laughs> that you, yeah. would, you would spend literally hundreds of millions of dollars to send um, a telescope camera on a spacecraft to Mars. I'm thinking now specifically of Mariner 4, okay, which flew by Mars in July of 1965. The reason I know all this is because I did a whole evening program on WTIC radio. And the program, which was hours and hours and hours covering live what was going on at JPL during the flyby, was nominated for a Peabody Award in radio. Way back when I was, you know, not dry behind the ears, as they used to say. Anyway, Layton, Dr. Robert Layton, who was a guy, a physicist at Caltech, who was the principal investigator on the Mariner 4 color camera, for some reason, decided to only put a blue filter and a red filter camera, but not a green filter. So you're right. They synthesized green by averaging between the red and the blue, but they didn't have a green record, which means they didn't have a scientifically defensible green archive record of the real color of Mars, And it only occurred to me now, literally, after all these decades, Holger, that that had to be a deliberate decision. So those color pictures would not show green vegetation on Mars.
2: And it was quite consistent until uh, really the Mars Global Surveyor that still didn't have the green filter and only Mars Odyssey, I guess. Yeah, that had a better camera then. But it also had some problems, Uh, only the the Mars Explorer and uh, the Mars uh, Reconnaissance Orbiter, those have really nice cameras, uh, much uh, in in all color channels that it was an advancement then. But I'm I'm still wondering how those uh, cameras would see Earth. Because we don't have any nice uh, comparison test images taken by those cameras of Earth. Well, for this comparison. raises
0: a really interesting <laughs> problem because at this Mars conference, after you got home, you wanted to find in NASA's archives calibrated images and graphs and numbers for the current cameras on the Perseverance rover. So you went to the archive that NASA maintains on the, on the rovers, you couldn't find it, so you enter it into the administrative complex uh, labyrinth, a bureaucracy FOIA request. What's an FOIA? Freedom of Information Act. In the 1970s, after the Church Committee found all the skullduggery of the CIA trying to kill Castro, the Congress enacted something called the Freedom of Information Act, where under law, when you ask government to provide you with records, they have to provide you with the records or come up with a damn good excuse like they've been destroyed uh, for not supplying you the records. And these records are less than two years old. In fact, they're just a few months old. And what did you find when you asked through your formal FOIA request for the records on the Perseverance
2: cameras? That, that's indeed a good advancement that you have in the free society. Here, those requests that those are possible,
6: <laughs> and they,
2: um, I wanted to uh, to get uh, images, test images taken by the mass cameras on Earth before flight. So, test test images under sunlight on Earth or under simulated sunlight, at least, of industrial industry industry, uh, industry standard calibration targets. Yeah,
0: cal- calibrated images taken on
7: Earth. Yeah. So.
2: To, okay. to create, technically, to create camera profiles at the same technology you do with commercial cameras if you do professional photography here. And I looked, uh, search for the archives through the PDS database, NASA PDS database archives, where all the other mass images are already. But I could not uh, really find uh, those for the current mission. I could find some few of the curiosity mission but all those were uh, without any real documentation. You get the images that as is. (laughs) You don't get any other information what type of light was used and there was never an an image taken under daylight outside under sunlight that doesn't exist there for the the modern missions at least. uh, Hang on, hang uh, on, hang
0: on. on. See, the difference between the current missions, which frankly I think are cover-up missions so we don't really see what's there, and the original Viking mission, the Viking scientists and the and the contractor that built the Viking lander, they literally took it to Sand Dunes National Monument in Colorado, and they took pictures outside under real daylight, morning, noon, and night, and they would have fun running from one end of the picture to the other, because it was what's called a line scan camera as opposed to a uh, framing camera so they could literally line <laughs> yeah. all their scientists up against you know the colorado backdrop of sand dunes like mars and then when the cameras scanned by them some of them would run around to the other end of the of the group and they get their picture taken twice you know fun and games
2: it, it was similar if you would take today a panorama picture with your smartphone and pan it around the horizon that is similar in yeah, some yeah, way like exactly. the viking camera act but the, the viking camera was much slower than it, it took a oh, minute much, or much. So but, but the <laughs> thing
0: is that and, we have calibrated images in the archive yeah. of daylight pictures taken by the viking surface cameras there were two of them
2: on yeah, the correct. surface
0: item, of earth items. outside uh, I, and you can compare those with the daylight outside images taken on Mars, which is how we know, I know, that that original blue sky Arizona-like image, that was the real Mars. And everything since has been an effing cover-up.
2: Correct. And the proof is item number 15, (laughs) where uh, those Viking lander images, test images on Earth with the Mars camera that uh, is published in the archive, a bit hidden. You cannot directly view it with your web browser you have to decode the raw data writing your own code which i did uh, it was around 2009 i guess and then you can get those images i have in item number 15 you see the the area around denver on the left and then on the right uh, great sand park like we said already before then some calibration targets there and uh, the, the reason that we have those images today uh-huh. is that the engineers of the imaging team back then at marietta denver from the contractor they insisted especially also the engineering manager thomas much from the camera team they insisted to upper management that they want to take the camera out to get real images not just theoretical graphs from each component of the camera taking full images under real conditions outside and after some days of convincing tries they, they achieved it and management agreed that they could take out one of the valuable six cameras only. They only had built six cameras, four for flight, to Mars and two spares, And they could take out one into the desert there and take those images. And they've
0: never done it since.
2: Correct, and it's surprisingly back then. What what was the cost of one of those cameras? It took years to develop in several laboratories. It was a hand-built, uh, specialized uh, digital camera in 1976. Uh, there, are no other digital cameras existed in 1976, <laughs> and that cost several millions, then, and they drove it with the rental truck into Great dunes and had fun uh, imaging turtles there and <laughs> other animals and the scenery there. Um, and today uh, on the rover, on the Perseverance rover, we have commercial USB cameras, some of them, not all, but uh, the the cameras used for the landing, and on the SkyCrane also were commercial USB cameras uh, from, you can buy it, all so right, online for four hundred dollars.
0: Yeah, the the generic um, term is like a GoPro camera, like Kleenex is generic yeah, I, for tissue. Yeah. Uh, they were uh, Some not, of them were not GoPro cameras, literally, but they were that. They were commercially available. You order them from a company. You use them in skydiving or in you know scuba diving or jumping out of airplane, whatever. Um, and they use those cameras with a little, very small modifications on the lander that brought the rover perseverance down to the surface and yet they never tested any of those cameras outside of jpl for calibrated images
2: yeah that is item 24 to 26 in my items those images were taken during the landing of perseverance uh, uh, from the land uh, from the rover upwards and from the sky crane downwards and upwards to the parachute and you see, because uh, that was simple for me, because I knew that those are commercial cameras. I knew the, the camera sensor type that is published. You can get the camera characteristics, the spectral characteristics are published online on the manufacturer website, and you all you have all those data points and can create your camera profile. Is a technical term that I did, and I adjusted this camera profile to daylight on Earth, 5,800 Kelvin equivalent. And the result are those images you see here with, with showing a, a bluish to white to blue silver gray sky. Um, and you see Earth-like colors when the camera is looking down, sand soil like, uh, like a desert on Earth under normal sunlight conditions. And uh, if you adjust the other... The, the non-commercial mass cameras then yeah. to uh, adjust to the same plant soil color, then you can get the whole environment uh, visualizations uh, and in the other items.
0: Okay, well, hold it there. We are at the uh, uh, top of the hour. My guests this morning are Holger Eisenberg and Ron Gerbrunn and Andrew Curry. You're on the other side of midnight. We shall return. We'll Welcome back, everyone. It is now Saturday night, Sunday morning here in the land of enchantment. On the other side of midnight, we're talking about Mars tonight.
7: If you're a reader. We're
0: talking about Mars, a planet that has literally been lied about from the get-go by NASA for the last 50 years. Not only in terms of the color of the atmosphere. Frankly, as I'm going to talk about uh, as we get into this last hour of the program, the very nature and the density and the pressure and the amount of the atmosphere of Mars itself, and even more than the color, which can be, as we have uh, been discussing this evening, color being quite subjective to different people and different technologies and uh It used to be different films and now different CCDs. But the actual amount of air, it turns out that NASA has been lying for some reason about that too. Anyway, Hogar, you were saying.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah let's get back to the the test images taken on earth with the mass cameras uh, the FOIA request was about uh, getting access to the test images and especially because the test images were documented in the camera documentation for the perseverance rover you find two public documents about the cameras from two different teams and both teams are listing specifically image IDs of test images they took on Earth in the laboratory, not under daylight, but at least under defined light uh, of calibration targets. So they listed in the document as as file names. And I requested those images. And the response was from NASA headquarter of uh, of FOA requests that um, they could not uh, find any matching records. <laughs> it was a response uh, and then pointing to some standard website there, uh, I already knew and uh, documentation, but uh, they could not find those uh, images which are documented in their own documentation.
0: So in the scientific literature, let me get this correct, in the scientific literature published in peer-reviewed scientific journals, the team, the Perseverance team, the imaging team, carried out these tests, wrote them up, published them scientifically, and then you go and request from NASA the documentation and the calibrated images they've published, and NASA says,
3: oops, we can't
0: find them. They don't exist.
2: That it is, and especially that is a classic uh, That's case for F.
0: That's a cover-up.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a classic case for FOI request because FOI request you can only access data which is uh, archived somewhere, but it is not yet published. That is uh, the use case for FOI request. That is good, and in this case, the data was uh, written down in digital format, documented. It was just not published to the public. It was at the engineering team, at the contractors, at MSFS and at JBL. Those are contractors for There It exists at the engineering teams, but uh, the, the headquarter, the archiving team says, uh, no, we, we don't have the data. Maybe it, it, they can look up where the data exists, at which company, at which laboratory. But I don't know what is the problem there. Well, what's the point? of... Did docking? they
4: say the data existed and then went away? I'm sorry. Uh, no. Yeah, that, that was.
2: Uh, I. Uh, actually, I have to get some positive feedback also to the FYA team at JPL NASA there because I could actually call, speak on the phone with uh, with a person, uh, the manager for the for the archiving there for handling the request, and uh, he said uh, if, if it was deleted, they would have said that. But uh, here. Uh, they could not find why one would they records. delete <laughs> data that's no 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 they have not <laughs> they have not deleted it They okay. would be documented usually so or they would have written then it was deleted but uh, they could not find matching records for the so, <laughs> response you can read the response so this is, like going,
0: this is like going this is like going to 10. an old-fashioned <laughs> library and you go to the main information desk and you say i want such and such a book on thermodynamics published by so and so in 1877, and the librarian goes back in the stacks and comes back and says, well, Mr. Eisenberg, um, we have the book on record, but
2: it's not on the shelf. It's missing. We don't know where it is. Well, that would be a good answer. I would be fine with that. And then dig further. It's a specific team then, but just getting a reply that uh, we cannot find matching records, that's a bit strange in the, in the digital world, of course, also here. Auger?
4: change the names. I recall reading before, and I, said, I ran into it with Apollo Pictures. They just changed the name of it, you know, the, the archive yeah. file number. And then they say, oh, we can't find it if you ask for it by the old name.
2: Yeah, that, that was also my first guess. Maybe it is a legal, safe response <laughs> that they uh, just did a digital, uh, direct, byte-by-byte comparison with the IDs I published in my request and what they have on record. But yeah. uh, the, the filings are not that complicated. Those are uh, um, even readable names, like uh, calibration target with Watson camera number 10 or so. So not, not really... In- Complicated IDs there, and they are not many. There are only uh, a few hundred in total, and I only requested, for example, twenty for the Watson camera, and uh, then a bit more for the Cam Z. But uh, it is a, it's a viewable list there. It is, and if they if they would have contacted uh, the the team managing the camera developing, that so maybe fee management people there who are still uh, in, in those laboratories or universities it would be possible to to get some information from them especially in the two months working on this request sure
4: did they say it was embargoed you know like somebody's working on a paper or we're
2: crunching yes, that, the data uh, that, would be, sure, that would be a valid uh, uh, response but uh, uh uh, the embargo is four months for, for uh, science data for the Mars rovers that is documented. And after four months, uh, all data is released. And, in and, the these,
0: and these tests were done years ago.
2: Yeah, two years ago. At, no, at more minimum.
0: than, more than. Yeah. The, <laughs> yeah, the, the development yeah. of the spacecraft did not start three days before they launched or landed on Mars. It was, we're talking at least five years of data that's past due now.
7: Yeah,
2: and uh, 2019 was, for example, one of the last uh, for the for the Watson camera because the Watson camera was actually built during the Curiosity mission as a spare camera for Curiosity. Uh, there, it is a Mali camera, which is the same model. Right, right. And the Watson camera was built at the same time, already measured at the same time, and then just uh, was in storage until the Perseverance mission was completed uh, built completed in 2019
0: so Andrew what is your impression
6: of all this well how do you answer the uh, mainstream argument that well there's a lot of red sand and red dust on Mars so the there you know the sky really is pinkish like what Sagan said and it can get really red depending on how many dust particles are suspended in the atmosphere I mean how do we how do we counter that
2: argument yeah that uh, is a good question of course and uh, you can uh, find out about that by uh, setting your camera to a static uh, calibration you do that for example if you have uh, A digital camera, you can set it to automatic white balancing, or you can set it to a static white balance for daylight, for cloudy sky, for artificial fluorescent light or incandescent light. Those settings exist at every camera. And if you adjust it fixed to daylight Earth and then bring that camera to a different location, like this other planet, then you have a direct absolute comparison of the light conditions uh, towards the Earth's daylight. And to, in item 13, you can see this uh, actually done with the Viking camera set to the static setting, which was producing good images on Earth in daylight, like we saw in the test images in the Great Sand Dunes. And uh, during normal weather, it shows uh, sand soil on image, uh, item 13. You see a brown, brown, bright brown soil and uh, bluish to white sky on the left. And then we have a dust storm in the second picture, where the sky gets red. Yes, that exists on Mars, but only during dust storm season. And dust storm season is a few weeks, maybe per Martian year. And then you have nice clear sky again on the right. uh, This time in winter, where you actually have surface frost there. Image was taken at 2 p.m. local time. Which,
0: which image are we talking about? 13. Item 13. 13, okay.
2: And 13 is showing the first two normal images, uh, dust storm and uh, summertime there on Mars, and then winter time. the latter photo, which surface frost, you see white uh, ground frost there. And it's not just the morning, it's uh, 2 p.m. afternoon. And the uh, temperature measurement at that time, because they also had a Viking lander had a temperature sensor in the footbed, uh, that uh, showed it was it was really cold there. In the winter, it was minus 90, 90 degrees Celsius. Minus 90 degrees Celsius, that's minimum temperature in the Antarctic. Uh, but at the, in the Antarctic, you don't get carbon dioxide ice, uh, ice and uh, here on Mars, you also don't get carbon dioxide ice uh, as that location. You only get water ice, so we see nice water ice here on Mars in the afternoon.
6: Okay. Now another question: When did we know? I mean, was it only when Viking landed that we really found out the color of of Mars' and the atmosphere? Were we guessing? Like, okay, the reason why is when you guys were earlier talking about the canals, Richard, you right away brought to mind, of course, film. <laughs> For me, which was um, Robinson Crusoe on Mars, um, and wonderful film by the way, I recommend it for everyone. It's it's just a great. It's from 1964. Um, Haskins, I think was the was the uh, director, and you know they really portray the sky as really intensely red. Now is that was that a, a meme or an idea that was in place? Already? No,
0: no, it wasn't. Interesting. Remember the meme at that time was low. Lowell's Mars was basically Earth, but with a much lower atmospheric pressure where you would need uh, not a spacesuit. It was about one tenth the pressure uh, at the surface of the Earth at sea level, so like very, very high mountains like uh, Everest. so you would need a uh, a, a face mask, oxygen uh, uh-huh. your your blood would not boil, uh, your skin would not erupt, there was enough pressure outside maintain normal homeostatic function provided you had breathing apparatus uh, like at high altitude mountain climbers um, you know at Everest altitudes 29,000 feet or higher um, that was the conventional wisdom and so that movie which depicted a Mars that was red with red atmosphere yeah it's yeah. almost like that's where the JPL guys got their idea, oh, we'll just turn everything red. Red planet, red sky, you know, red sky in the morning, sailor's warning, red yeah. sky at night, sailor's delight.
6: Yeah, and Richard, I mean, you know, I mean, you have an image in your uh, items that, uh, of a Bonestell painting that depict, you know, that in his imagination at the time.
0: Well, no, uh, that was the- based on the science of the time. Remember, right. Chesley was a brilliant science illustrator um, and what he did was he took the pressure estimates, that's my number 12, this is by Chesley Bonstell, it was done uh, probably in the this was part of the series he did for the Collier magazine um, yeah. uh, spread on space travel and why we should go to space and go to Mars and go to the moon and all that and he depicted the mesas there in the upper right and then he You see the ships and the little, um, you know, dome, the artificial dome where the crew hung out while they were doing the exploration. But the sky was deep, deep, dark blue because it was supposed to be thinner air, fewer number of molecules per cubic inch or cubic meter. Uh, There were some estimates that you might be able to see brighter stars looking directly overhead that's what he has over those two maces on the right, but basically this was the kind of Mars that we anticipated before Vikings. Yeah, then, and
6: that was ni- oh sorry Richard that was 1953 just to just to cut yeah, in on
0: you. For yeah, early fifties. Yeah. yeah. So that movie was what 54, right?
6: 60, Sixty-four. 64. Okay. ten years later. Yeah.
0: Well, we didn't land on Mars until 1976. Yeah. So there was no change in appreciation of the Mars that we anticipated until uh, Mariner four, which didn't fly by until 65 and gave us those weird pressure readings that were then relayed to the world and the public and government and all that. But that didn't occur until a year after the movie came out and probably two years from its being in development and being, you know, shot. So it's like, the red sky where did that come from it's really interesting historically where did that come from by the way if you look really closely at some of those uh uh rock outcroppings at the top of those mesas on the right oh yeah they look too damn geometric
6: yeah bonstow was doing that a lot (laughs)
0: in his paintings yep yep what did i mean he What did Chesley know and when did he know it?
6: And of all the people to be doing it, he was, you know, he did begin his career as a... uh,
0: An architect.
6: Well, he wanted to be an architect, but he became an architectural renderer. So he really had to understand architectural plans to be able to make the projections, you know, 3D projections. He did all the
0: drawings for the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge.
6: Yes, he did. Which was just down
0: the street from where he lived there in Berkeley.
6: Yeah. In and so years, so what better guy to be looking at this stuff than someone who really understands structure anyways I was just curious about when all these ideas about sky popped up because it seems like there was a change, you know as we move into the late fifties and into the sixties there's almost like this oh, well i don 't know, or at least if we look at a movie i mean that 's one example, one movie but yeah it's it is curious, Richard, that there was like this sort of muddling going on a decade later when there was this. You know, just like uh, Chesley's paintings, are very bright and, 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 again, almost a travel poster style, right? And now we have Holger coming back and showing us, oh, it is a travel poster. They're quite beautiful, right? Like these shots of Mars. Well, the
0: thing that I'm intrigued with, and this is the real mystery, Holger and Ron and Andrew. Number 10. <laughs> Number 10 is my comparison on the left. There is a guy, I think his name is Baumgartner, I think. He did one of these uh, stunts where he took a uh, a helium balloon up to, I think, 120,000 feet, sponsored by uh, Coors or Red Bull. Uh, No, it was Red Bull who sponsored him. And then he jumped out and he free fell through hundreds of thousands of feet to where he opened his parachute down around 20,000 feet and then landed safely in his spacesuit, uh, duplicating the work of a guy named Kittinger who did this back in the 1950s for the US Air Force and the Space Medicine Laboratory in, in Texas, uh, where he jumped out uh, in a spacesuit in a helium balloon at around 100,000 feet. And then uh, Baumgartner got, I think, the record because he went 20,000 feet higher. The thing you want to look at is, look at, the, uh, at Baumgartner standing there in, in the doorway of his space capsule before he leaps off into space. The things above him are cameras, digital video cameras, monitoring and recording and sending to the ground live data of every move, just like from the space station or from the shuttle or whatever. And then what you want to do is look at the horizon. And this is around, I think, was taken at about a hundred thousand feet, 120, which is the equivalent um, uh, height above the Earth that NASA says the pressure of the Earth duplicates on Mars. In other words, in order to get a comparison with the current surface atmospheric pressure and density on Mars, you've got to go to the altitude of that balloon jump back in the, the 2000s uh, with Baumgartner at thousand feet or Kittinger decades before And when you look at the sky, you can see there's this band of blue hugging the surface of the Earth. And above it is pitch black because you're basically in space. Okay. now you look at the image on the right. This is the first color um, uh, hazard cam image taken from the Perseverance rover moments after landing at local time, about 4.00 p.m. in the afternoon at Jezero Crater on Mars and look at the color of the landscape, look at the color of the sky, but more important, look at the brightness of the sky. Why is that sky so damn bright? The density of the atmosphere is only as dense as the image on the left at over 100,000 feet above the Earth, shot from a balloon with a skydiver about to leap off for a free fall of uh, over 100,000 feet before he pops the parachute. What is wrong with this comparison? So NASA has not just been lying about the color of the atmosphere, which gets into the composition of the atmosphere, but they've been lying about the nature the density, the amount of the atmosphere for over 50 years. Why, and much more relevant I think tonight, is how the hell on a planet of 7 billion people and millions of scientists, with everybody looking at everybody publishing everything and trying to find where they've gone wrong, how has NASA gotten away with lying about a whole damn planet for half a century
2: that's indeed still a mystery especially if you compare what what they did at lowell in the 1920s they measured the temperature surface temperature of the planet mars and they got it correct in the 1920s they measured uh, between uh, the maximum uh, daylight noon temperature on the surface there on mars was between 10 degrees plus celsius and 30 degree plus celsius that is between 50 fahrenheit and 90 fahrenheit that was the surface ground temperature measured from Earth through this telescope with a radiometer that is item seven i'm showing here that was visible in the museum they uh, did a remote temperature sensing there through the telescope in infrared of the surface, uh, similar to modern infrared uh, fever thermometers, and they got it right. The, those temperatures are confirmed, like item eight. You see it confirmed with the Spirit Lander. Uh, you see the maximum at 30 degrees Celsius there, and minimum as the the minimum of the daylight noon temperature and near zero freezing point. That that was confirmed, but. Uh, the, the surface pressure suddenly changed in the 1950s from mm-hmm. originally it was assumed 70 to 80 millibar that is the uh, um, Ten uh, percent of Earth's atmosphere about yeah well,
0: about one tenth then, of the atmosphere that, we're yeah, that
2: that would be survivable for humans if you have an oxygen simple oxygen mask but uh, then suddenly it changed in the 1950s to uh, or uh, late 1950s is the first or early six sixties is the first measurement of the emissions to 10 millibars so a factor 10 wrong. While the temperature was correct, That is strange.
0: (laughs) Well, it's called incompatible inconsistencies in scientific data, which should be consistent. Look at my number 11. This is a a mosaic made from the GoPro color uh, imaging on the uh, uh, descent um, carrier of the Perseverance uh, rover as it was coming down right after they popped the parachutes at about seven miles, which is 35 to 40,000 feet. Now, if you fly in an airplane at 35 or 40,000 feet and you look out the window, you can see near the horizon, it's bright blue and it grades to much darker blue uh, when you look kind of like way up above the airplane toward the zenith, toward the top of the sky. Look at the brightness and color of that color camera image taken on from the lander on the way down at around thirty five forty thousand feet, look at how damn bright the atmosphere is, and look at the color near the very top, which is in this geometry near the near the point you know that's equivalent that's actually somewhat brighter than you'd see if you were looking out the window of a of an airplane going from l a to uh, to New York how the hell does that brightness, because remember brightness is a function of scattering of light light can only be scattered by a material object, there has to be a lot of molecules to scatter light to make it that damn bright under the pressures we're given and the densities NASA has been giving us since the 1950s, since the late 1950s Where is all that brightness coming from, particularly when you compare it to an equivalent altitude above the Earth, where you can see visibly, obviously in the comparison, the air over the Earth does not do that. The air on the surface of Mars does not look anything like, in terms of brightness, the brightness over the Earth at an equivalent altitude. So someone is lying. Over a half
4: century. Well, you want to be consistent if you want your lie to stick.
0: But why does it stick? (laughs) Why doesn't some meteorologist on Earth take a look at these pictures and go, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. You know, like that great line in, what was it, Oliver, where the kid raises in and Mm says, may I have some more, sir? Why doesn't somebody at a press conference say what the hell is wrong with your estimates of the atmosphere of Mars? They're totally wrong by the most basic facts, atmospheric physics.
4: Uh, Richard? Yes? Well, they, uh, they are kind of relevant to the darkness of the sky thing that you're saying right now. I wondered if we could jump over to mine. I know I missed a big chunk. Uh, I probably lost my place in line, but I'm afraid my phone's going to go out again. So I wanted to... Wanted to well, we are
0: literally at the bottom in- of the hour. So why don't we wait until uh, we come back? My guests this morning are Ron Gerbran, who was just speaking. Uh, Holger Eisenberg, who's been speaking and showing us some very interesting problems with NASA data, with the publication of NASA standards, with the lack of calibrated images in the archives. They claim they just can't find them, and they're only a couple, three years old. And, of course, Andrew Curry, who is our resident artist, illustrator par excellence. And when he looks at these images, like um, Holger's mosaic, they're all over the damn place. Where the hell is any scientific calibration? You're on the other side of midnight, My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Last half hour, we shall return.
1: Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership cost $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought.
0: Welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight, last half hour on this Saturday night, Sunday morning here in the Land of Enchantment. If you want to join the conversation, if you want to ask uh, one of our guests tonight a question, or if you have a pithy comment, or if you're going to leak something from inside, real data, if you can answer the question, why the hell has NASA been effing up an entire planet for half a century in front of the American taxpayer, congressional appropriations, the president's various administrations, the world. Why don't you try calling us? And I will give you that number momentarily. 917-889-8802. 917-889-8802. Join the conversation, even if it's only to ask an important question. Question. And we're back with our guest of the morning, Holger and Ron and Andrew. And Ron, I think you wanted to go do some more of your images.
4: Uh, yeah, just saying, <clears throat> a second, I got a cough. Sorry, mute button wouldn't have done it. Uh, <laughs> number one, you already talked about, that's just a, um, some Viking pictures, one rather famous one. And, uh, anyone who wants to make their own Mars pictures, just go out and take a picture of your yard and then put it on your program that does graphics, um... PaintShop Pro and the, and GIMP I believe both have the same filter pack. If you go to look for color effects, you know, like put a color tint over the whole thing, uh they have one on uh, PSP labeled orange. Just says orange. <laughs> just give that set that at 10% and put it over an image and it'll look just like one of the brand new pictures from Perseverance. Okay. Or several other programs uh I didn't do an example of that cuz that's just stupid but it's uh, but that's what color it is it's the same color as a standard filter pack filter on a graphics program and uh somehow that's interesting but moving beyond those I didn't for once uh these aren't uh, very enhanced most of them and in fact the uh number 2 that's labeled as is yep, yep that's four different images I pulled a, uh, an equal-sized piece of uh, from four different panoramas, and uh, the up in the top, on the top edge of the picture it has the um, JPL number. You know, not all the different frames, but it's you can go look for it in the photo journal if you want one. But notice how the sky, uh, well, it can vary and it's all blue that's those are unaltered untouched these are relatively brand new yeah.
7: uh
4: from the jpl photo journal and um now are these curiosity the, uh, the bottom, or,
0: or perseverance images uh
4: these are all pretty recent i think they're all uh yeah
2: they are uh curiosity those are from curiosity with with uh
4: yeah two are from curiosity from.
2: yeah okay
4: yeah, I mixed I mixed them up just because it was more visually pleasing. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> the and now number three is completely different images from completely different panoramas, but all from the photo journal, and the same thing. Two of them are Curiosity, two of them are Perseverance, and uh, these I enhanced stabilized a little bit. You'll see there isn't that much difference. And the color correction, with the exception of the upper right uh, frame that's either a sunset or a sunrise, I think it's a sunset, Um, uh, I just used at its default setting uh, the white balance. You know, it's a one-button thing, just pink white balance, and um, the way it came from the factory not presumably designed specifically for Martian pictures and perfectly Earth standard colors. Mm. As far as I can see. Hey,
0: we've got a call. So hang on, Ron. I want to get back to your pictures. But Barbara, yeah, yeah. Barbara Honecker, who's going to be on tomorrow night with Stephen Bassett and Georgia Lambert. And we're going to be talking about, uh, uh, you know, the bizarreness of the release, non-release, classified, non-release leak of the Congressional UAP UFO Report. Barbara is with us. Barbara, welcome to the show again.
3: <laughs> yeah, hi. I've, I've got a really important question.
0: Good, good.
3: Okay. So, so I don't know if I've mentioned this to you before, Richard, but regardless, your audience and your, the other guests need to know. So as fate would have it, my business partner at the time in 1976, uh, when the first Viking images came in, um, happened to be, he, he worked at uh, NASA Ames uh, near Stanford University, where right. I was a, a graduate student. And he called me up about midnight and he said, if you can get over here to Moffett Field, um, I will meet you at the gates. And he gave me a time. It was like 2 a.m. in the morning or something. And he said, if you can meet me here, I'll get you through the gate. And you can come in and sit in the auditorium with me while the very first image from Mars comes in. Well, of course, I went. And what I don't understand with all of the images that you're showing, when the first, the very first image came in and all of the others that night, It took forever because it was one vertical line at a time. And when finally the image filled in, it was red. It was the very first image was red earth or red uh, soil, red rocks, and a very reddish sky and the sun. It was as if there were there were concentric rings around the sun. That was the very first image, and it was red.
0: Okay, I think... See, memory is funny because I was there. I know almost everything there is to know about Viking, and I guarantee you, you did not see a real color image, and here's why. Leading up to the landing uh, on Viking, the Viking team including Sagan, who was on the imaging team, had a big internal food fight because the engineers were terrified that we would land the first spacecraft on Mars and it would disappear. It would literally sink into deep sand dunes or dust, never to be heard from again, and there'd be almost no data and there'd be no engineering analysis of what went wrong and what do we need to do to make the next landing work. So there was this huge fight between the imaging team members that wanted to take a picture of the horizon, a panoramic view of the horizon to show Mars in all its splendor. And I'll get to the details of that picture in a second. And the other engineers who wanted to take a picture of the footpad, looking down at the surface To see what the surface looked like, how deep the pad was dug in, and if they were going to be swallowed up by deep dust, never to be seen again, and they get a... Well, that was
3: not the first image. The first image did show the horizon, and it even showed the sun.
0: Okay. And on both counts, you are wrong, and I'll tell you why.
3: I know what I saw, Mr. I know what I I saw.
0: you, You are not... Well, then you were looking at a doctored C that aims compared to what we were seeing live at JPL. Remember, both are NASA centers. Let me tell you what they well, were, now, Hold oh, on, on,
3: hold on, hold on. Did the, the image that you saw at JPL or wherever you were, did that come in line by excruciating?
0: It was done by one of the two cameras on the lander called line scan cameras. They were like facsimile right. cameras. In fax machines, a generation later, which you had in your home, and you could send pictures anywhere in the country. Uh, yeah. Okay. Or, so my
3: question or, to is, did or, you or, see that image come in line by line, like I? Did? Yes.
0: Yes. Yes. Vertical line by line, and it would wipe from left to right, and it would come in one line yes. at a time, agonizingly slow, and it was yes. an image of the footpad, and the images were in black and white. There was no color. The color no,
3: that's
0: on the not I'm, that I'm what we saw. That what we saw at Market Field. Well, that, then they altered the image. And what you, and the, the, you well, did not see it live because the second picture that came in line by line, uh, right after the first one, which took like, I think, an hour to build up on the screen. Um, and the second image that came in line by line in black and white was of the horizon and of a very bright sky, And everybody commented about the bright sky. And that was the image when when it's completed, Gene Roddenberry on my right jumped up in front of 2,000 people from all over the world, the press from Japan, from Europe, from Africa, from everywhere, even from Moscow. And he yelled, cut, print. And the whole room went into absolute laughter because it was a stunning tour de force by Gene Roddenberry, Star Trek director. But it was a black and white scanned image, line by line, of the horizon and the brightness of the sky and the overwhelming brightness where the sun was in the sky. Okay,
3: allow me to make one more comment, because we both saw what we saw. We were both at a NASA facility. That's what you've just said makes it very likely that I arrived oh, only at the beginning of the. Let me finish, Barbara. What? That I must have. I must have arrived uh, for the beginning.
2: Exactly. The, uh, the first color image was at least one day later, and it came in line by line, like you said. And then, after the first lines of one image was shown, the next color channel was coming in. So you had to wait three line-by-line full-screen scanning to get the complete color because it was uh, sequentially maybe first the blue, then the green, and then the red channel, and building up by that over time.
6: Yeah, and I I found an article here um, from uh, uh, NBCnews.com. This is back from... February the twenty seventh, two 2015, the title is Color Controversy Started with Mars Not with Hashtag the Dress and I'll read really quick here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was the
7: debate
6: in 1976 when NASA's Viking One Lander became the first spacecraft to touch down on the red planet. Did Mars have a blue sky like Earth or was it a sky of a different color? The first pictures to be sent back showed an Earth-like blue sky leading
2: some to hope that Mars could sustain life at the surface and then it goes on from there. So this yeah, is that, that, that you Aha. can even see if you look on YouTube there's one recording even of this event when they showed the first uh, image on TV there, line by line I in was color there. Uh, I there. now Barbara
0: it's do it's you blue, did you know what the
2: nation is uh, Hogger Hogger let me ask Barbara a question Holger, uh, just let me ask Barbara a question bring in the raw data of this uh, line scanning camera to uh, oh. a color TV screen you, you get immediately blue sky. It is yeah. inevitable. <laughs> yeah, I also Alger. see it, or you can okay. also see it if you just load the raw data into your uh, imaging program. And then if you apply the uh, camera profile, which I did in addition, then you get a bit reduction that uh, changes the color setting a bit, uh, and uh, it is reducing the blue a bit, but it's still blue to white then. Did we lose
0: Richard too, you guys? Can everybody hear me? I can Hello? hear you.
6: Oh, yeah, I think we've lost Richard as well. Keith, did we lose Richard? I'm. I should be right here.
2: Uh-huh. I can I hear don't. Richard. Are we no. still online? Ooh.
0: That's it's weird. I'm can on. Can you hear me? I'm online. Yeah, yeah,
2: we <laughs> Yeah, we are. Three, but, but we are not online anymore, or are we still on radio? That is so
4: bizarre. Uh, oh, I don't. I don't. There's an audience yeah. out there, so the. Um, I don't
3: the, think Holder can hear you, Richard.
4: Um, but yeah, that's that would be a Richard Uh You know the remember Babylon 5, vividly <laughs> yeah. the TV yeah. show.
2: I, I was I was more uh, a next generation fans, <laughs> and I, I never watched much Babylon. 5. Oh, this was
4: er- <laughs> this was er- earlier than Next Gen, but, uh, Star Trek. But the um, thing is, they were um, and they stayed in the solar system pretty much most of the time. Uh, (laughs) But uh, in the fifth season, they had a sequence on Mars. And like many sci-fi shows, it ended as soon as they started talking about Mars. That's another thing uh, that's happened. But uh, uh, they they had an outside bit that they did, and they were wearing like Arctic parkas, and a, a like a half face rebreather rig that was perfectly credible and you know fits exactly we're all talking about and the um, sky was not red.
2: So, oh my uh, gosh!
4: The uh, uh, Straczynski, I guess, snuck that one past him. Can, Can any, you
6: guys? Richards 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 Another artist. Yep, Richard,
3: you were going to ask me a question.
6: Because you've been sitting back there patiently waiting, and I know Richard probably didn't see you in the chat box. Good morning, um, Andrew. Good morning, Good morning, Ron. Hi, Roger. Uh,
4: Hi there. Hi, there. Hi there. Um, Speak up. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yes. 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 Sorry, my my, my volume is always off a little bit. I, I'm just intrigued. I was just going through whilst I'm going to show some of the uh, – The images on um, the
2: Mars um, Curiosity mission, How some of the colors are um, blue in the background, some more modern ones, and then others directly are are orange. So my question I would have asked to Richard and Holger is why
4: the uh, discrepancy between the two colors and consistent discrepancies? Yeah, they, well, that's yeah. That's why that's why I did those those uh, panels that are in my section there to show you that sometimes they got it right, and I I could have included some older ones that were very orange in the sky, most of them, but not all of them. Yeah, yeah. See, the the photojournal okay. images yeah. are different than the ones that you get from like the Curiosity website. If you get the panorama there, it's a different mosaic than the one usually than the one yeah, that's, that's put out by the JPL.
2: Not what much
6: uh, color that is
2: missing yeah.
6: Yeah. Okay guys, yeah. you can't hear me, but um uh, somehow Richard's not feeding uh his program audio to us on Skype but we are still going out on the air. So oh, um
4: oh so with Richard trying to talk uh talking not we're us not here able to hear him, is that what you're saying? Well, Keith, can,
0: can, you Barbara, in, can you go can you go in I the Mars machine?
4: Can you go in uh, the Mars she's machine? still there, So I'm oh, trying to and, figure out where we can and we can't are. hear her, so yeah. Somebody's well, lousing up ahead, our program. Dealer's choice. Pick some <laughs> pick one of the lines so that the people who are listening won't be so confused.
2: Mm-hmm. You to talk about some of the images here. Oh <laughs> well, yes, yes, we're,
4: yes. yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Olger, that's uh, great stuff you got there. Yeah, I love if that. I like, love uh, the selection you brought with you.
2: Uh, Ronda, your item two those uh, the photo photojournal images with uh, with a white blue sky. Also, if you look at the image captions, there they are uh, captioned with white balance, and mm-hmm. uh, then the other non-white non-blues images are captioned with uh, the real uh, the human observer view then on another website that explains mm-hmm. on their in their point of view the differences that they did that automatic white balancing that explains the white sky for them but my um, yeah the white
4: I sky said, i the, yeah I, I the white sky i i should i should mention that once in a while uh, a lot of mine have what looks like a white sky those are a blue sky picture it's just that there was so much yes. filtering on,
2: yeah, the ar- or, or, on the
4: one that i got from nasa yeah. that the uh yeah it wipes the blue out
2: brightening or, or it is really close to horizon where you have more white even on earth and if you go a bit above the horizon it gets more blue uh, but uh, the point between those different colorization on the NASA photojournal is uh, in my result, with, with the color, with a camera profile I applied, my result uh-huh. was that both that types of calibration result in the same light sky. That was my result. Uh, so there is no difference. And you don't have this difference if you have Earth daylight. On Earth, it's the same. There is no difference between those two different calibration types. And uh, That is my result. Uh, I found the says, same.
4: Th- I found the same thing, and I I noticed yeah. the Kelvin numbers on yours, and those are pretty close to the standard yeah. profile on a white balancing thing, anyway.
2: Yeah, that that was my result. You you uh, my result was, then also you don't need white balancing because you have it automatically if you set your camera to to Earth daylight, and it is correct. Well, that, so that that was my result. Uh, mm-hmm.
4: That's wrong. Yeah, well, wrong that's, wrong that's on the on camera. The camera. Can you hear me? But the funny thing is, the reason I mentioned the orange mm. filter, that wasn't, yeah, that, that wasn't in just yes, the... There's um... Richard. Hello, can you hear He's me? Back. Yeah, if mean, you can hear me. Yes.
2: Oh, yes. my
0: God. Yes, uh, I, I can hear you. I have no idea what's been going on because I haven't touched anything. You know, someone's jerking us around because electronically, I've touched nothing. i checked the pots, checked the feeds. You know, we're basically down to the last... You know six minutes of the show um
4: and the mute was and not most set. of the time when i called keith back he'd say my your voice is all garbled it, it, well it so, was yeah, yeah, the, yeah the phones yeah. the phones have not been friendly
0: that is very bizarre okay so where were we when i was so rudely interrupted <laughs> <laughs> you you were asking trying to ask me questions. All all all, all 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 right. Did did you write down the? Oh, date? you were arguing with
4: Barbara did about you, the red did sky. You, did
0: you write down the date of when your friend invited you to Ames? Because the landing was on the twentieth. In The wee hours. The first color picture was not available until the afternoon of the twenty first, and then the horrible red version was brought out that evening at a press conference where Pollock and Sagan claimed there was some infrared light leak in the camera. And when they corrected for that, everything went red. Yeah. Infrared. But when
3: they brought that out the next day, <laughs> that was, that wasn't coming in line by line.
0: Yes, they would. The cam- the images, the line scan cameras produced images line by line they were then red green and blue first through filters then they put them together as a red green and blue composite and that's how you got the color image you didn't see the color
3: no, I image that. i understand that my my point is i believe what you're saying is that um the the about 24 hours later when they brought out the red what you're calling the red image that no, they brought, being...
0: the, they, they brought out the color image twenty-four hours later. Then two hours That's after the that, they changed it to red. The change was within a couple hours. The first. No, color I understand,
3: image... but the change. But let me get the, let me get this out, please. The change to the red was not seen coming in line by line. It had no. already come in when they changed the color. Yes. Yes. Okay, but I saw a red image come in line by line. Then what they, they did use, uh, is Barbara, they Barbara, hang
0: Barbara. on, hang on, yeah. Ogre, hang on. What they what they I was there, remember? I'm old enough to have been there live. What and they did Mark what they obviously did then was they put a red uh filter electronically over that line scan image to show for the Ames audience what they expected to see, which is red view of a red planet, it was fake color. Well, that's,
3: that's that's possible, but what I saw was red, regardless how they did it.
0: Well, we need to figure out historically how they did it and who did it, and someone mm-hmm. should be held accountable because that was cheating. That's not what was really happening. Yeah, it sounds it to me like it's shame in it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Go ahead, Olger. It is it's also actually I guess, like, like, like Richard, i i I believe what Barbara was seeing, because uh, if you if you see the real color image, you would see three scans over the total width of the image you would see the the line by line incoming you would see three times for the color image and you have seen it only once you have seen the line by line incoming over the full width of the image, and then the image was there and then you you haven't seen additional two scans over the image, correct? Right. And that extends if you only see one scan, then you have a monochrome image and they added a, a tinting see, there to right. the See, monitor. I
0: know, and you can go back and historically check the record, the first two black and white line scan images were the footpad first, followed by the panorama of the horizon second. And what everybody yeah. noticed and commented on live, including the scientists who gave it, were at the press conference afterwards, they were so surprised by the brightness of the sky because they knew from their own basic high school physics that the Mars they'd been told was going to be what they landed on could not support that dense an atmosphere with that brightness sky. And so right there was the dichotomy in full view for anybody who knew what they were hearing, and that got totally submerged.
3: And was that image of the did did the sun look like it had concentric circles
4: around it?
0: That's the digital digitization due to the steps, the digital yeah, steps the, between
2: indeed, the, the quantization, the
0: the, the the light levels. Okay,
2: and that, they, that's they an artifact.
0: That's an artifact of the camera digit digit digitization system
7: yes, okay they, but they, did they, you they, see they, that as well
3: yes yes it's
0: every mm-hmm. photograph taken with that kind of camera does that
3: okay all right well i just wanted you to know what i saw came in line by line and it was red this guy as well
4: see that's so weird okay. because barbara of, barbara holger was trying to uh, technical part of that But now briefly, they don't, you would never see the lines coming in uh, fully colorized. You would see like was previously described. First you get the red screen, then you get the green screen, then you get the blue screen. And, you know, then you would get, so you wouldn't see that image of the three primaries combined coming in line by line because that's not done until after they've got all the data to work with.
3: Well, it's very possible that I went home um, after Jeremy M. Scam
4: We are out
0: of time. Uh, We've had a very interesting evening up until the technical glitch. Not quite sure what Chris can do about it. Tomorrow night, Barbara will be back and Steve Bassett and George Lambert. And we're shifting gears slightly sideways. We're going to be talking about the congressional report anticipated for over six months, supposedly to tell us the truth finally of the uap ufo situation well it's not quite that simple so until tomorrow night same time same bad channel third star on the left straight until morning good night everyone oh and reset your clocks back one hour good night